welcome back to the Baseball Trade Values Podcast. My name is Joshua Iverson, and I am the Associate Editor of BaseballTradeValues.com, joined, as always, by founder and owner John Bitzer. John, how's your week been treating you? Uh, it's cold. I'm in New Jersey, and it's been icy, and you got to watch where you're stepping, you know, and it's winter, and, and there's the lockout, so it's, it's the winter of discontent. Mm-hmm. It, it's actually pretty nice out here in Arizona, but at least it seems like the ice might be starting to melt on the lockout I, i'm i'm See? starting to get a little bit of a little bit of optimism which is always dangerous but you know it is it is crunch time everyone's talking about it that mm-hmm. you know if they don't want spring training and possibly the season to be delayed it's it's time to get in the negotiating room and get something done so fingers crossed that that happens within the next couple of weeks and we can have our baseball that we've been waiting so patiently for the good news is our users has been very busy with trade proposals and we'll get mm-hmm. into a lot of them. Um, but, you know, it hasn't stopped anybody from <laughs> you know, having fun with it, which I think is great. Yeah, exactly. If anything, I think it's, it's stimulated people more if you don't have real baseball to uh, to mill over the rumor mill and get so excited about. Why don't you just take matters into your own hands and play around with the site a little bit? I think it's it's great. Um, exactly. So this week, uh, I know, I know, on the last episode, we um, we kind of alluded to that being the second and final part of our whole uh, trade chip series and and kind of the trade market dominoes. Uh, but we talked about it a little after we finished recording and, and decided we still got some more in the tank here. It's been a really popular series, and there's a handful of interesting teams that we hadn't covered yet. So why not do a third part, especially while there's no immediate news that needs our attention otherwise. Um, so that's what this episode is going to be. We're going to run through a whole bunch of other teams, Dodgers, Angels, Mariners, Rays, White Sox, Phillies, D-backs. If we can get to all those teams, that would be great. We're going to do our best. I think we've learned from the first two and our pacing might be a little bit improved this time around. So fingers crossed on that. Um, but yeah, that's our basic plan for this episode. But first, John has a bit of an update on the site, um, in, in regards to our prospects. Yeah, so you might have noticed some of the uh, valuations on the prospects have changed a little bit. Um, And that's because it was a big week in prospect world. We had two major top 100 lists released, Baseball America and Baseball Prospectus. The one that carries more weight in our model is the Baseball America top 100. That's been kind of the gold standard in the industry for a good 50 years now. They put a lot of effort into it, making sure it's right, a lot of input from front offices to make sure it's right. And so... And so we take it seriously as well. Um, now, to some degree, some of those numbers were already baked into our model, but they do they did make some changes, which meant that we made some changes on our site to reflect them. So we had some downgrades, we had some upgrades. Um, at the very top of the list, they had three very clear sort of number one, two, three guys that could go almost in any order, Adley Rutschman, uh, Julio Rodriguez, and Bobby Wood Jr. Um, those three seem to be like a cut above the next layer, which is typically Riley Green and, and Spencer Torkelson. And then there's a whole sort of, it goes down from there. <clears throat> but those three are really high. So we wanted to make sure that that was reflected, number one. Uh, number two, um, there's a couple of sort of middle level sort of upgrades. Jeremy Penny of the Astros was upgraded a little bit. Matt Brash of the Mariners was upgraded. Uh, both those guys have um, you know, had some sort of strong seasons and some, some good um, tools to work with. So... Um, they felt confident about those. Um, on the downgrade side, um, there were some that fell out of the top 100, surprisingly. Asa Lacy of the Royals, 
uh, Bryce Terang of the Brewers, Jordan Groshans of the Blue Jays all fell out. Nolan Jones of the Guardians, Emerson Hancock of the Mariners. So those guys were downgraded a bit. Not super a lot, but a bit, because it meant that their sort of ratings also sort of went down a little bit. They might not be a 50, they might be a 45 plus in our system. Um, so, and then a few others that we thought were going to make it based on their earlier uh, things uh, didn't quite, like Sam Bachman of the Angels, Mark Vientos of the Mets. Um, so those were sort of, they were hurt a little bit as well. Um, and then a couple more upgrades I forgot to mention. Um, Nick York of the Red Sox was was upgraded, and uh, Joey Weimer, I think Joey's his first name, uh, of the Brewers was upgraded a little bit. So you'll see some of that reflected, and um, it's not a major change, but just wanted to let you know we're trying to be as accurate as possible. So those folks, of, those of you who had Jordan Grosshands going to the A's in a trade proposal or wherever, you might have had him in his earlier higher value, might want to take a fresh look and say, okay, he's not quite as highly valued as we thought now. In his particular case, I, I, I I, no, I noticed in the chat, the BA chat, that when people asked about why why didn't he make the top 100 in particular, and they said, well, we surveyed front offices, uh, and they all agreed, front offices all agreed that he wasn't front top 100 material. So that kind of sealed the deal there. So in other words, we feel strongly that between their input and the front office input they got, that these numbers are you know, updated and, and as accurate as possible. So we just want to make sure those are reflected on our site. Yeah, and it's it's always important to note with stuff like this that there's there's tiers to this, and you alluded to that, you know, the very clear top three, and then that next kind of group uh, that starts with Green and Torkelson. But and and that's what I appreciate so much about the way that Fangraphs does their prospect evaluation and and publication is that they include those grades there that kind of tell you okay these are the tiers and they've also the last handful of years gone a little bit past 100 to show some of those guys that just missed the cut and I, and I know baseball america comes out with another article after their top 100 every year saying those guys that just missed the cut but uh, when you get down to that like i don't even know what number it starts at these days that 70 to 100 80 to 100 range those guys can be pretty interchangeable and it's just kind of you know personal preference of the people who are evaluating them and so there's still another, you know, 10, 20 spots after the 100 that could very easily go as high as 80, maybe. Yeah. Uh, and it's just based on kind of preference at that point. So just falling out of the 100 isn't necessarily enough to tank a guy's value. And, and, and that's why John was careful to point out that those guys like Asa Lacey just got a small adjustment because they're still well-regarded prospects in general. Uh, but it is clear that for a guy like Lacey, you know, his control was not what people hoped it would be. And, and he has fallen down a peg there. Um, not nothing huge, hugely significant, and you know a strong first half of the season next year gets him right back in the top 100 uh, at the midseason update. So it's nothing to be super concerned about, and not that he's necessarily a guy the Royals are probably looking to trade right now anyway. But just an important note that you know, a hundred, no matter what cutoff you choose for a list like that, there's always going to be guys just just on the other side of the the cutoff that are you know, arguably just as good as the ones on the correct side of the cutoff. So there's a little bit of gray area there down at the bottom. Um, yeah. And, and just because a guy fell off doesn't mean he's now worthless. No, absolutely not. In fact, yeah, it's a, it's an arbitrary cutoff. Totally agree. And they agree as well. And so what's important is what is the equivalent rating? Is it a 50? Is it a 55? Is it a 45 plus? Um, right down in that range between the 80s, 90s, 100s just missed. They tend to be around the 45 plus area. If you 
we sort of normalize everything to the fan graph scale. Um, so it's, it's, there's not much difference if you made it or you didn't make it, you know, between the 45 plus guys, cause they're still 45 plus guys, you know, they're right in that same area. So it matters just a little bit because they wanted it because being included is just a little, you know, feather in the cap. Um, but it doesn't matter all that much. It's, it's like a couple point difference at, at most. So nothing to, nothing to write home about. The, the other sort of thing I wanted to point out though, is it's really interesting to kind of hear their comments. So I mentioned gross hands, um, like the front offices that they surveyed all sort of agreed. It wasn't quite top 100 material. And, and the reason it seems to be that he doesn't hit the ball all that hard. And he's also not likely to stay at shortstop. Everyone sort of figures he's going to end up at third. But if you're a third baseman, you're playing a corner, and you really need to hit the ball hard. You need to, hit, you have some, you have to have some power. And his exit velocities have not been that impressive. So he's sort of like a, okay, is he going to hit for high average? What is he exactly? There's sort of that weird sort of question mark with him. And and that's just one example. Some of the other guys that didn't quite make that cut also sort of had Nolan Jones has power, but probably not going to hit for a lot of average and. He hasn't been, his stats have not been all that great. Emerson Hancock's had shoulder issues. You know, you can sort of point out to these sort of red flags with all of them. At a certain point, you say, okay, well, that's probably why. So just wanted to point those out. Yep. And as always, we'll continue to update as additional publications release their their updated rankings. I believe Fangraphs is the main one we're waiting on right now. Um and as I mentioned, theirs is always quite detailed. They actually give us the grades, so we don't have to play any kind of guessing game with that. Uh, but yeah, if you if you continue to see prospect grades, uh, prospect values shuffling around a little bit, then that is why. All right. So after that, let's get into some brief news notes um, for the last couple weeks. Uh, again, lockout, not a whole lot of actual activity happening, but we do have a couple quick updates here. So first of all, just wanted to mention briefly uh, that the Dodgers have promoted Brandon Gomes to be their general manager. Uh, that's the former reliever Brandon Gomes, who I, I kind of forgot all about until <laughs> until his name started popping up this offseason. Um, he was a popular candidate for a couple of the openings around the league. Uh, I'm pretty sure the Mets reached out for him uh, to see if he would run their, their baseball ops department, and, and instead the Dodgers held on to him and gave him this fancy promotion. Um, so not too much expected to necessarily change with this news. I mean, the Dodgers are run by Andrew Friedman, and and Josh Burns is a big name there too. And and this is just kind of the the way that front offices have trended lately. You know, it used to be that general manager was the top baseball ops position, but the more smart people you get in the front office, you have to start promoting people so they don't go away and give them better titles, better money, and and better perceived power, I guess. Um, so this is just one of those things where he's the general manager. There's still two guys ahead of him in line when it comes to baseball decisions, but uh, he gets this nice little promotion and, and presumably a raise with it, and it and it kind of prevents him from going elsewhere. Yeah, I found it curious, though, that they still have Josh Burns as kind of a VP-level guy. I'm not quite sure who's number two or who's number th- – like, do they have three guys now? Like, <laughs> And, you know, obviously – Andrew Friedman is number one, but is Gomes down number two in the pecking order or is Burns? I, it's weird there. Uh, everybody else is clear they have a two, two-person operation, um, well, most teams anyway. Um, but that one, I think, has a three-person operation, so I found that interesting. Um, that's point number one. Point number two is, to your point about <clears throat> more and more we're seeing um, ex-players starting to rise up. 
Um, it's still kind of in the minority. I'm thinking in addition to Brandon Gomes being ex reliever, Sam Fold, ex outfielder, is the GM of the Phillies, Chris Young, ex pitcher, GM of the Rangers. They're, you know, in the current structure, they're the number two guys in each one, the president of baseball operations being the number one guy typically. Um, but they're making a lot of decisions, a lot of the day to day decisions. And it's interesting how that dynamic is playing out because they have to be. You know, obviously looking at it from the sort of management point of view, but also they see it from the player point of view as well and how to sort of bridge the gap sometimes between those two worlds and how to bridge the gap between the analytics and the sort of player. You know, there a lot of the times they're involved in the sort of the day to day game plan kind of operations. So I think that's sort of an interesting trend, trend to watch the ex players that have sort of embraced, you know, the business side of it, the analytics side and have risen up to that level. Yeah, exactly. It was kind of a back and forth where it used to be almost exclusively ex players that ran the th- that ran the show and, and didn't necessarily know what they were doing, weren't weren't listening to analytics or anything like that. And then this whole new wave of all the Ivy League grads and all the nerds that never played and and now they're running the show and now it's kinda going back in the middle where it's where it's some of these smarter former players that can kinda blend the the traditional on field knowledge and some of that familiarity with these these concepts that now all all the front offices have to follow the being reticent to new technology new information um it, it's it's an interesting shift and i i think we're only going to keep seeing it going um as far as the three man front office i wonder a little bit if it's kind of protecting in case one of those two guys gets hired elsewhere in the next couple of years um a handful of years ago the a's had something a little bit similar going on when they had Obviously, Billy Bean running the show, as he has been doing for a couple decades now. Uh, and then David Forst is kind of his right-hand man, but also Farhan Zaidi. And the three of them were kind of the brain trust in Oakland. And then, what do you know, Zaidi heads to the Dodgers. He gets a bigger role there. And then he heads to the Giants, and he's running the show there. So I wonder if this promotion and hanging on to Gomes is kind of, you know, preparing for either him or Burns to take over a higher-ranking spot with another organization in the next couple years. We know the Mets are still looking for a big name to, to lead their front office potentially down the line if if Billy Epler isn't their guy for the next handful of years to come. Uh, we know David Stearns, his contract runs out in the next couple of years with the Brewers. Maybe he goes elsewhere and they need to fill a spot. So there's going to be some big name openings within the next handful of years, and maybe they're just trying to protect from either Gomes or Burns uh, in case one of them does head out, that they'll still have two smart guys running their team. Yeah, probably so. All right. Uh, next piece of news. Carlos Correa has switched agencies and hired Scott Boris to represent him. Uh, this is a bit of a complicated one. You know, it's not just as simple as he wants money, so he hired Boris, although <laughs> that <laughs> that could be a large portion of the argument. Uh, but there were also some complications with Correa's former agency. It, it's something with uh, with the organization that has been purchasing some minor league teams. Um, I'm trying to find the name Endeavor. Yeah, their their parent company of his prior agency uh, has been purchasing some minor league teams, and that's leading to a bit of a conflict of interest and MLBPA threatening that the agents would have to decertify or divest from the company. And, and so we've seen a couple other players uh, jumping off that ship, but Carlos Correa, obviously the biggest picture one, and he heads to the biggest picture agent in baseball and, and one of the biggest agents in all of sports uh, this can only really mean good things for him and you wonder if it might have any implications on you know what teams are talking to him what teams sign with him there's been a couple teams and 
front office personnel that have had better relationships with Boris over the years. So you wonder, does this maybe put the Tigers involved, even though they already got Javi Baez? Do they, are they now talking to Boris? You know, he's always had a pretty strong relationship there. Or the Phillies, Dave Dombrowski, he and Boris have been kind of buddy-buddy in, in a handful of different spots that Dombrowski is, has run the team. I don't know if they are really handing Correa a blank check with all the money they already have on the books, but they could use a shortstop. So there's a whole lot of things that this could mean and a whole lot of things that probably won't mean. It's it's probably just, hey, my agency's kind of falling apart over here. Might as well head to the guy who I think can get me the most money. But it'll it'll be interesting to follow this storyline once the lockout ends. Yeah, and I don't want to speculate because we haven't really heard anything definitive about you know, what his market might really be. We, you know, obviously with Corey Seager signing with Texas for 325, you know, that's a big number and Correa wants to beat that. And you can speculate and say, well, maybe he wasn't getting the offers that, that, you know, either matched it or beat it. And so he's going with the big guns <laughs> to see if he can. I mean, that's the sort of take that most people are, or are, are, you know, are, are taking here to respond to that. Because he want, obviously, if you go to Boris, you're going to want, you know, the reason you're doing that is to get the most money. And if he didn't have confidence in his prior agency, complicated by the other points you made, then I think, you know, that's the logical conclusion, but we'll see. Yep. And then last piece of note, news here is John Lester retired. And now this isn't the same situation as we talked about Kyle Seeger, uh, I believe, on the last episode and how he was kind of leaving some stuff on the table, leaving some money, leaving some field value on the table. He was still a, a very productive player and could have hung around another couple seasons until his performance, until his body kind of forced him off the field. This isn't that. John Lester is pretty comfortably past his prime, well into the decline. He was worth, he was replacement level by fan graphs last season. So he's going out before he goes really underwater and who knows how many job opportunities he was looking at anyway. But... A really fantastic career, obviously the postseason success and beating cancer and all of that, um, but also interesting to look at from a trade perspective. And we won't go too deep into it since we have so much to cover here, but uh, he was in the somewhat infamous, depending on who you talk to, Joanna Cespedes deal that the A's made in 2014, and he came over when Oakland was pushing all their chips in, and he dominated in the second half, and then was a bit of a disappointment in the wildcard game. Really his one poor postseason performance there. And, and we're not going to get into that, but there's, there were a lot of factors there. Uh, but I think a little bit more interestingly, actually, at least for, for right now with the time that we have, is his midseason trade to St. Louis this last year. Um, the, the Cardinals were really on the fringes of the playoff race, but knowing them, they were never going to sell. They were never going to uh, give it up prematurely. But instead of making any big additions, they just, you know, spent small. They picked up John Lester and they picked up uh, Jay Happ, two veterans who weren't really performing too well for their teams, but could give St. Louis some hopefully league average-ish innings. And Lester was actually pretty solid for them. He put up a 4.36 ERA down the stretch in 12 starts. And that, that number was not supported by peripherals at all. They were pretty ugly, but... St. Louis has a notoriously good defense, so that helped. And, and really, it was the innings that he provided above all else that, that helped the team there. They had a young pitching staff, and, and they really just needed some of those innings covered, and he did a good job of that. Um, so it was a trade that was a little curious at the time because I, I don't think it was quite even. I think it came out as a bit of an overpay for the Cardinals um, just because of the money that Lester was still owed. But it was clear between that one and the half trade that they just didn't care too much about the money. 
it was more about we need some innings. This is going to be the easiest way for us to get those without really mortgaging our future. These guys are both just rentals. Let's bring them on and, and kind of see what happens. And it clearly worked out well for them. They ended up making that dramatic September push to the playoffs. And even if they didn't go deep into them, it, it got them there. And so that was a su successful trade on their part, even though it might not have looked perfect by the values. Um, and, and that could be another case of, you know, a perfect fit and something that we can't really look into when we look at the values of... You know, the Cardinals are, with their defense, like I mentioned, are a good fit for a guy like Lester, whereas another team, he might have just continued to be horrible down the stretch. So not a whole lot to say. I, I've probably already said more than more than that deserves, but congrats on a, on a solid career, John Lester, and a really interesting couple of trades in there as well. Yeah, um, Lane Thomas was sort of on the outs in St. Louis, and so he was the return for the Nationals, and he performed relatively well for Washington to the point that they thought, oh, maybe he's a future piece because, you know, he was looking like a fourth or fifth outfielder at best. And he kind of turned on the Jets a little bit in Washington. So uh, that trade works out so far very well for the Nationals. And But to your larger point, John Lester, great career, seems like a good guy. Hats off to him. Yes, he was done. Yes, I think he made the right decision when you look at it on paper. There's not much left in the tank there, so it was about time. So congratulations to him. Yep, seconded. All right, you want to start talking about some of these trade scenarios? Yeah. So let's start with the Dodgers. Always interesting, always competitive, and and usually active in the offseason. Now, they were surprisingly quiet before the lockout. I don't expect them to be quiet after the lockout ends because they've got some holes to fill. Um, number one, they lost Corey Seager, obviously, you know, mainstay in their lineup, you know, shortstop. Um, they do have a next man up sort of system and philosophy. So you can say, well, maybe, you know, do they put Gavin Lux over at shortstop and work around some things? Uh, we're not sure yet, but I think there's a left-handed bat hole that they need to fill. Max Muncy obviously had an injury that we heard later after the season was more serious than we first thought. So you have some question marks there about how healthy he's going to be, how much offense he's going to provide. So you've got a little bit of a need for another bat. <clears throat> um, I forgot to mention Trey Turner. Um, looks like they're shortstop. So, okay. So that's part of why they traded for him at the deadline last season. You know, they haven't played in second base while Sigurman short, so he's going to probably move over to short. Maybe this gives Gavin Lux the second base job, but he still hasn't really proved himself, so you're still thinking, okay, maybe they need one more bat there. Um, they did resign Chris Taylor, who, of course, plays everywhere, and they're great at anticipating their needs from a depth perspective, so, you know, that was, that was a key signing. But I think they need one more bat, so that's point number one. Point number two is their rotation, they need another starter. They... You know, Clayton Kershaw is a free agent. Trevor Bauer, who knows what the heck's going on. I don't want to get into his off-field issues. Um, so they've got right now, you know, their rotation looks like Bueller, Urias, Gonsolin. They did sign Andrew Haney. Um, David Price on Western Resources listed as their fifth starter. He's not a starter anymore. He's a, a bullpen arm at best. He's 36 years old, going to be 37 soon. So he's probably maybe a spot start, maybe a swingman. But they definitely need another starter. Probably... And number two, the reason why they traded Max Scherzer at the deadline, because they were going into the playoffs and they needed another horse. Obviously, he was that guy, but <clears throat> they need another horse with Bueller and Urias. So the priority, I think, is, you know, strong rotation arm, number one, 
and another left-handed bat to replace Seager number two. Um, the rotation arm, um, there's not that much left in the free agent market, so that's why I think they're going to look to the trade market. They're probably going to be looking at some of those A's pitchers, maybe the Reds pitchers, and we can go from there. Yeah, so let's start with a bat. Um, they've been pretty connected to Freddie Freeman. They're kind of, they're probably the top free agent destination for him if he does not head back to the Braves, and, and who knows where that situation is going to shake out. That's why this is called the trade market dominoes. So if he does go back to the Braves or goes to another mystery team or Toronto or wherever else, um, that does open up a team in the Dodgers that, as you mentioned, is looking for a big left-handed bat. And so maybe they pivot to the next big left-handed bat on the market, and that's Matt Olson. Uh, it's not a perfect fit. Neither is Freeman, to be honest, since they do have Muncy there long-term, and he's best suited as a first baseman, even if he's going to be potentially missing a couple months to start the season. I don't think we have a, a for-sure timetable locked in there yet. Uh, but this this gets a lot easier to make it work if there is a universal DH. Um, you know, Muncy's a good fit for that, and obviously he's not a full-time DH since he has that positional versatility around the infield. But, you know, some days he'll play third base and let Justin Turner DH since he's getting up there in years and his defense is starting to slow down a little bit. Um, it's the Dodgers. They have they have plenty of options here, and that DH will only help them uh, continue to keep guys fresh and, and move guys around, and, and they're so flexible all over the diamond. So even getting a guy like Olsen, who's first base only, and, and I mean first base only because you're not – if you're picking up Olsen, you're not going to DH him. He's got such a good glove at first base. That's a big chunk of his value. You want to capitalize on that. Uh, but even adding a first base only type, if there's a DH, they can make it work. In this deal proposed by user Inferno007, they are picking up Olsen, who we have at 45.3 in median trade value, as well as Tony Kemp, who I know, another versatile bench type for them, left-handed bat, at 3.2 million. In exchange, Oakland would receive uh, right-handed pitcher Tony Gonsolin at 16.8, infielder Gavin Lux at 15.5, and outfielder Andy Pages at 18.7 and so this is there, there's about five or six guys that um, are really included in the majority of these Dodgers proposals where they're adding some of these bigger names and so it's Gonsolin, Lux, Pages, uh, Miguel Vargas is another one, um, Bobby Miller comes up a lot, Ryan Pepio. There, there's this handful of names where they aren't necessarily elite elite prospects you know you don't see Diego Cartaya's name come up too often uh, because the Dodgers have been really hesitant to deal guys like that in the past. They tend to deal more from this kind of mid-range of prospects and hang on to the true blue chippers. That's why they didn't trade Cody Ballinger or Corey Seager when they were prospects, even though they were very competitive and could not could have gotten some big talent back for those guys. Um, so they tend to deal from this mid-range, and they could be kind of on the outs. You know, Gavin Lux hasn't put it together at the big league level, as you were suggesting, and he might be just a second baseman. I don't know if he necessarily has the chops to handle shortstop. Uh, Tony Gonsolin also hasn't quite put it together and had some shoulder issues last year. So you can see why those guys might be on the outs and why they're, you know, they might be interesting by-low opportunities for some other teams. Um, I don't think this deal is perfect because of, you know, the aforementioned shoulder issues with Gonsolin. That's a bit of a risk to take back if you're Oakland. Um, Andy Pages, we talked about him last episode, I'm pretty sure. He's an interesting one. He's really, I think, at the top of the list of uh, who users have the Dodgers trading. And I don't know if it's that clear. He is His, his value is rising. He's 
hopping up on lists. He's had, he had a good season in 2021. He's getting closer to the bigs, even though he's a couple years off still. He might be one of those rising stars that the Dodgers choose to hold on to because they think he's going to continue to move up and become one of those blue chip guys within a couple years. So I don't know. And that's, and that's all speculation at that point. It's, it's, it's what we have to ask in every trade of, oh, what if that team likes this guy more than the consensus? Then, of course, they're not going to trade him in this deal. Um, but I, I get that feeling with pages a little bit. I, I might be way off there, uh, but he might be a type that they hold on to. And then, uh, Lux just being second baseman only, it could work for Oakland since they have Nick Allen kind of slotted as their long-term shortstop since he's got the glove for it. And then maybe they can go bat first at second with Lux and, and he does have some flexibility. Maybe he could learn the outfield a little bit. I don't know. Um, so, so it's not a horrible return from the A's perspective I think it's pretty solid it, it kind of checks off some of their boxes these are two guys who are major league ready right now in Lux and Gonsolin and a high upside piece to kind of dream on in, in pages uh, even if it might be a couple years there but then from the Dodgers side of things we just talked about how they need starting pitching I don't know if they're really ready to give up on Gonsolin uh, if they need that depth that I'm pretty sure he's slotted into their starting rotation if the season were to <laughs> were to start tomorrow um, so I'm not sure if that makes sense for them. I'm not sure if they're ready to move pages yet. And I don't exactly love the Tony Kemp fit. I mean, I know he's a versatile player. I know they'll find a spot for him wherever, but they already have a whole lot of versatility on that roster. So I wonder if he doesn't make quite as much sense for them as he might for another team. So there's my thoughts on that. Uh, ready to weigh in, John? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much with you. Um I'm okay with a return from the ace perspective. Don't love it because I think they're going to angle more towards high-end prospects rather than major leaguers. Now, granted, Lux and Gonsolin are still on the younger side, but um, they've already burned some some service time. So, and I'm I, I think the A's would want to, you know, focus on prospects who haven't quite are are close to the major league level but haven't quite gotten there yet, haven't started their clocks yet. Um, so that's point number one. Um, Point number two, you mentioned Gonsolin. Yes, he is right now listed as their number three starter by Ruster Resource, which is a bit of an issue because he hasn't really proven himself yet. So that's why I think the Dodgers need to focus on it. We'll get to other possibilities in a moment. Um, so, but but losing Gonsolin it probably doesn't make a whole lot of sense from the Dodgers because they need that that depth. Uh, but I want to make another sort of point, which is you know uh, when you're talking about Andy Pages or Pajes, however you say it. Um, I could see him being dealt, but I also I also agree with your point that the Dodgers like to keep guys with upside, and they have a tendency to um, develop well. So guys that are sort of right now listed at the mid level are also starting to show up as sort of helium guys. Like, oh, this guy could be in the top 100 next year. I noticed Eddie's Leonard, the second baseman who we have at 6.0 right now, showed up on the sort of maybe next year list from Baseball America. Uh, they also mentioned uh, Landon Knack, a right-handed pitcher who we have at 4.1. So these guys, you could easily see their value going up in a year or two. And they have a tendency to do that with their prospects, which is a testament to their you know, development uh, system there. So um, on the one hand, you could say, well, they can afford to lose them because it's the next man up. Then they're just going to replace those two helium guys with the next two helium guys. Sure. And they're and the pattern continues and they might just do that. But that's a great sort of luxury to have if you're the Dodgers because they they other teams know this and they're sort of interested in their project, their prospects because they develop them well. So there's a lot to uh, there's a lot of capital to work with there. So I think they will be making some deals from this tier 
um, I think I think you're right about Cartaya. They probably want to keep him, and even though they already have Will Smith at catcher, and maybe they don't need another one, but we'll see. Um, I do think maybe one of those pitchers, whether it's Miller or Pepiot, is probably going to be on the block as a. Yeah, they don't want to, but they might have to in order to get what they want. That's sort of the painful side of the trade if they want to make you know get a guy who's really good. So um, I can see them trading one of those guys and then a couple of these guys who have some helium. Yeah, agreed. Also, as as you were talking there, I kind of put the pieces together. If, if they're trading Lux, then yeah, that is an opening at second base, and maybe you just slot Kemp in there. Mm. Um, not that they don't have some other options for there. And I mean, you can give Chris Taylor more full time at bats, uh, but then if you're if you're keeping him at second base all the time, then you kind of lose some of that versatility. So, so I, I guess that Kemp fit makes a little more sense when you take Lux out of the equation. Uh, but yeah, I, I agree with all your other points there. Uh, so let's head to a bit of a smaller one. This one is from user Charkip, who has the Dodgers acquiring Chris Bassett, as you suggested, maybe one of the Oakland rental arms or, or even Frankie Montas. There's been some proposals there, uh, but maybe one of those makes sense for them to help fill their rotation. In exchange here, Oakland gets Ryan Pepio, right-handed pitcher at 14.1, Cody Hoisey, corner infielder at 1.7, and Zach McKinstry, a utility player at 0.8. So that's 17 million headed to the Dodgers, 16.6 to Oakland. I think the A's could do better than this because I think there's just going to be such a wide margin, uh, excuse me, such a wide market for both Bassett and Manaya. So I think they could they could do better than this because these are uh, in, in Cody Hoisey, he's a bit of a mess. <laughs> it's a it's a former first rounder who really hasn't put anything together yet. He just posted a 30 wrc plus in 2021 or excuse me in, yeah in double a in 2021 his power is not showing up at all he's just not hitting the ball with any kind of authority and so some big red flags there obvious ceiling former first round pick but there's a reason his value is as low as it is he, he's just not performing at all in affiliated ball and then pepio Spent the first half of last season looking like he was on the rise, next big prospect, and then hit AAA, and that kind of cratered. He was pretty awful there, and I mean, he's 24. It was his first taste of AAA. Plenty of guys struggle at that jump and then figure it out the next year. So it's it's not like he's necessarily damaged goods or anything. He's still a very solid prospect and a guy I think the A's would be yeah, excited to grab. And, and then McKinstry just kind of fits their profile of, you know, they are also, I mean, these days, every team uh, values versatility, but he feels like they're kind of, you know, post-prospect, like not not a big prospect type who could play kind of above his ratings, above his uh, his scouting grades, that type of thing for them and, and plug a lot of holes immediately. Um, and, and since he is just the third piece in the deal, that's it's not too big of a deal that he's a bit older or that he's, his clock has already started, anything like that. So I don't think this is necessarily... I think this is a deal the Dodgers would love to make. You know, they're they're getting a really quality rental arm into their rotation without giving up too much that hurts their farm. It's really just Pepio. I think the A's could do better, but I could also see it being the kind of thing where, like you said, the A's value upside. And even if Hoisey is very, very damaged goods, he also has plenty of upside there. And Pepio could be one tweak away from really just breaking out. And so... I don't love it for the A's. I would be a bit, as, as an A's fan, I would be a bit disappointed if this came through the day after the lockout. Uh, but I could at least see the reasoning. Yeah, 
I'm okay with this from the East perspective. Pepio does have some good stuff, and you know they they do like to sort of target guys like that. Um, I don't think they'd be interested in Hoyce at all because he's just really fallen off the map. McKinstry, yeah, he's a third piece throwing kind of guy, so maybe replace Hoyce with something a little bit more interesting with maybe a little bit more upside, and I think they might have a deal there. Um, from the Dodgers' perspective, I really like Bassett because he's a bulldog. I mean, the, the guy got hit in the face with a line drive. And he's like, yeah, I'm good. <laughs> he was in the hospital and wasn't sure if he was going to survive. And then, like, a couple of weeks later, he's back in the dugout. Then he's on the mound again. I mean, you know, you got to love that sort of spirit. And I think given the Dodgers sort of need for sort of a championship sort of team, you want to have a guy you like that in court, kind of in your clubhouse in your corner. Um, so I think they would like that fit. And they and he fits perfectly as sort of a solid two or three for them. So, um so yeah, I like it from there. So it's an almost for me from the ace perspective, and it's a short yes from the daughter's perspective. Yep, that's fair. All right, I want to go even smaller than that. Let's go to a proposal from user bzane19, who has the Dodgers adding Mike Miner from the Royals at 1.9 million in exchange for right-handed pitcher Michael Grove and outfielder Jaron Kendall. Uh, Grove at 1.3, Kendall at 0.9. So it's 1.9 for the Dodgers, 2.2 headed to the Royals. This is, this feels very Dodgers to me. I mean, I'm not sure if the Royals are going to move Miner. It was weird that they signed him in the first place, but they seem to really want that kind of veteran presence <laughs> fronting their rotation right now since all of their other options are so young and, yeah. and really not putting it together at all. They've had some pitching development issues in Kansas City. Uh, they have so much young pitching talent and just none of it has shown any kind of success in the majors. So maybe they want to keep Miner around, but... It's also, he, he's owed 11 million next couple of years. Um, I believe, isn't that, um, isn't a good portion of that guaranteed in 2022 and then a buyout on a 2023 option? Is that what we have it as? Uh, I'll have to look it up. Yeah, I'm looking it up right now. But regardless, that's um, that salary that isn't a huge deal for the Dodgers to take on. And Mike Miner, you know, he's... Yeah, yeah. So it is. It's a ten million guarantee in twenty twenty two, and then a thirteen million dollar club option in twenty twenty three with a one million dollar buyout. So it's really just a one year thing. There, it seems very unlikely that teams are going to commit thirteen million to Mike Miner next season, unless he or in twenty twenty three, unless he really did something special in twenty twenty two. But to that point, he was very successful with the Rangers, and that's kind of tailed off since. But maybe the Dodgers think they can bring that back, and even if they can't, he's a pretty reliable fourth fifth starter. Um, and all he's going to cost them is money. You know, Grove is pitching depth, and that's about it. And Kendall is a glove-only outfielder. So I I think this makes sense for them as kind of, obviously, it's not their one big move <laughs> in the rotation. He's more of, you know, just going to round it out kind of guy um, after, to, to add to bigger additions like Manaya or Bassett or Castillo or whoever. But I do like this for them. I really see the only question being whether the Royals are motivated to move minor or not, because it's not like they have a whole lot of money on the books anyway. So it's, they're not feeling necessarily pressured to get out from the contract. So I, I think that's all that this one hinges on. Yeah. I looked at this one, you know, when I'm surveying the, the latest trades on the boards and thinking, okay, I need to put up some new features. I looked at this one and I thought, no, Kansas City's not going to do that. Um, because to this is the points you made. They like a veteran guy. You know, he was a returnee, so he seems to like it there himself. And so they get along well. Um, and I just don't see any reason for them because they still have a sneaky hope, I think, to try to be competitive. So why would they do that? And the return for them is, is virtually nothing. The two guys proposed 
you know, really low value, really, they, they've been on prospects list for a while and kind of sinking like stones. So they're typically, you don't get to, you don't see guys like that whose stocks have dropped that far. You know, they typically don't get traded. They typically end up on the waiver wire a year later. So that's, that's where those sort of, it's where the momentum is. It's on the downside. So I don't see them being interested in those two guys and, you know, wanting to give up minor. I, I don't think money is that much of an issue. Uh, I don't think they're that, um, they're, I have checked, but I don't think their budget is that high. So I, I think they can afford minor and see what they go and give it a go this year. And then if he, he doesn't work out, he's a deadline piece. So I don't see this working from their perspective at all. Yeah. One minor note pun a little bit intended is his uh 2023 option turns into a mutual option if he's traded mm. which isn't a huge difference it just means that the dodgers can't guarantee that they would have him for that extra year if they wanted him like i said i don't think it's super likely that he will be a 13 million dollar pitcher in 2023 yeah uh, but just it, it it makes it just the slightest bit less attractive knowing that you don't have that certainty and that if you do want him back it'll have to be a mutual decision all right. And then one last Dodgers trade here. Um, and this is more of an example of something that I don't think will work. And so this is from a user Dodgers World Champs 2022. I think they're they're big, big Astros fans. Uh, Dodgers <laughs> and Reds deal. So the Dodgers are picking up right-hand pitcher Sonny Gray at $28.3 million and outfielder Tyler Naquin at $0.1 million, so 28.4 total. In exchange, the Reds acquire Tony Gonsolin, 16.8, and Gavin Lux, 15.5, so 32.3. So on in a vacuum, I like this a lot for the Reds. They lose some salary in gray, and they've we, we discussed on the last episode how you know they have those three big starting pitcher trade chips. They got Castillo, Gray, and Maley, and uh, Mally Maley, um, and they could look into attaching Akiyama or Moustakis to one of those deals, uh, reduce the prospect return and, and get out for more money. Or what I kind of suggested is depending on how much money they really got to shed here, I, I'd rather they just trade gray, you know, trade him now before his value dips anymore. You get out from some money and you're going to get something valuable in return and you can still keep your team together. Keep Castillo. Who's fantastic. Keep Maley, Who's fantastic. And, and just capitalize on the asset that's most likely to be in decline the next two years. So that that's kind of my stance with them. And, and from that perspective, this trade really works. And they add two big league-ready pieces in Gonsolin and Lux. And they want to still try and contend, even though they're shedding some payroll. I think this works for them. But there's really nowhere for Lux to play. I mean, this deal kind of hinges on him being an outfielder, I guess. Because I don't think he's a shortstop at all. Uh, he's certainly not a better defensive shortstop than Kyle Farmer, who not a, not a lot of bat there, not a long-term answer there, but he's slotted in right now. And he's certainly not a better defensive option than Jose Barrero, who they want to handle the position long-term. And so, you know, you got Jonathan India at second base. You've got Vado at first. You've got Eugenio Suarez, who's not the most attractive contract right now and coming off a rough season, but he's owed all that money. you got to see what he can do if he can bounce back. So he's stuck at third base. And then you got Mike Moustakas kind of hanging around. So where are you going to play Gavin Lux? It's it's kind of forcing him into the outfield. And if that conversion doesn't work, then it just doesn't work for them. Uh, the, the deal doesn't work for them. And then we have a, a bit of the same issues with Gonsolin, as we mentioned earlier. You know, the health is a bit of a question. The performance is a bit of a question. And the Dodgers, whether they're willing to move him right now. I think, I think it's 
easier for them to move him if they're also getting a starting pitcher back in gray. Um, so I, I don't think that's quite as big of a concern, but it's really just, I, I'm using this trade to point out that I don't think Gavin Lux is a good fit for the Reds. And that's a big part of why I'm not sure Luis Castillo ends up on the Dodgers, because I think it's going to, I think Lux is one of those pieces that they're most willing to trade right now. Um, rather than, you know, for Luis Castillo, give up Vargas and Pages and Gonsolin and Pepiot or, or something like that. I, I think they'd rather Lux take one of those spots because it seems like they've soured on him a little bit. Uh, but I just don't like, I don't think he's going to be that attractive to the Reds. So I don't think this deal works and I don't think a Luis, Luis Castillo deal would be very realistic. Yeah, I'm totally with you. I get stuck on it with Lux as well, because I don't see him. You've got India locking down second. You got Suarez at third. Mustakis, I guess, a depth guy slash DH. You know, they've got a shortstop issue, but they're basically holding the fort with Farmer until Barrero's ready. So that's been their plan. So yeah, you'd have to move Lux to the outfield, but he has not looked good in the outfield. He's not doesn't really have the tool set for it, to be honest. You know, he's a high contact hitter, you know, not kind of doesn't have the frame that you typically see and you know he, he looks like a second baseman in other words but you've already got a second baseman who's one of your best players so i just don't see it um you know from that point of view and also if they're giving up naquin um like you know their bigger problem is who, who do they got in the outfield in cincinnati i mean they got winker in a corner but after that it's you know tj friedel <laughs> i mean maybe nick senzel got, if he stays healthy games. yeah they got about 50 <laughs> games of senzel locked in so yeah yeah i mean and if you know i just don't think the lux is an outfielder so that's that's not what you want in your return for for sunny gray so yeah i mean i think sunny gray would be fine on the dodgers as kind of a number three guy I mean, he's got the stuff he's got the west coast experience um you know he's he's kind of a laid-back personality which fits the california vibe so with, he's got you know, a bit of that bulldog in him too a little bit yeah and he's you know what i like about gray most and people don't talk about it enough is you know he's crafty like he's always experimenting with new pitches and grips and things and he's always kind of trying to keep the the, the hitters off balance like he, he's he's not one of your sort of aces who just overpowers people but he's very sort of smart and crafty and he's always sort of tinkering and and he's gotten a lot of you know outs that way a lot of success that way so but but um i have no point other than that other than i think he'd be fine in the dodgers rotation um you know but i just don't see it from the reds perspective yeah 100 percent. all right we're gonna stay in southern california now do you want to preview the angels okay so what to do what to do my friends angels fans um there's been a lot of angels activity by the way i'm sure we'll get into and um one of the angels fans on our site that's been active lately is a user named kmma um and so okay so obviously you've got your big problem here is you've got you right now you're still in your window of time where you have trout is more or less still at his peak although he was injured but let's assume he's fine trout at his peak otani definitely at his peak and then what <laughs> you know you've got the constant problem of what's your short uh, rotation uh they tried to sort of band-aid that a little bit with the sunny noah Syndergaard, but you've still got some question marks after otani Syndergaard himself is a question mark because typically your first year back after tommy john surgery is a bit rocky they're not quite it takes a while to find that groove again so you're not you, you just can't assume that he's going to be the old noah Syndergaard. he's going to take some time to ramp up but then after that, it's Patrick Sandoval, who's got a little bit of upside. They're trying Michael Lorenzen in the rotation, even though he's been a reliever for the Reds. 
and then there's some depth guys like Suarez over here. So your rotation still needs help. You lost a shortstop. Uh, so who's playing short? I don't know. David Fletcher is not really a shortstop. He's more your second base guy, and even he had a bad year. So what do you got? You got an offense led by Trout and Otani, and question marks. Maybe you've got uh, some pop from <clears throat> uh, Jared Walsh at first, at least from the left side. He doesn't hit lefties well, but he mashes righties. Rendon was injured all year. Maybe he comes back and holds your third base for it. He's sure making a lot of money, so they sure hope for of that. You still have sort of Joe Adele and Brandon Marsh, your sort of recent prospects who have gotten their feet wet but not quite shown anything yet. Marsh has, according to our our system, more value because, frankly, he hasn't failed yet. Um, whereas Joe Adele has been underwhelming. And so his value has, has tanked as time has gone on a little bit. Yes, I know we turned it around a little bit in AAA, but he still didn't quite have the, the numbers that you would expect at AAA at that point, And he still was not that great at uh, the major league level. Projection systems are now sort of adjusting to the fact that he may not be all that much of a, you know, he's not gonna, he may not be a superstar at best. Maybe he's just sort of a, a regular uh, one to two war guy. Um, so you got a lot of problems. You need a shortstop. You need a little bit more offense in general, and you still need some pitching. So what are you going to do? So I, I have a handful of deals lined up here. Um, I, I, let's start with the starting pitching question. So they do have, uh, and, and you kind of, we, we discussed this on a previous episode. They do have a handful of options for the rotation, it's just if they are really set on competing, pushing some chips in, and it's it's time to win. <laughs> I'm, I'm not even going to get ahead of ourselves here. It's not. I'm not going to say time to win a ring. It's time to get Trout back to the playoffs for <laughs> the first time since 2014, right? Um, I don't know, only the second time ever. So it's time to get to the playoffs. If, if that's what they're motivated to do, then I think it's time to upgrade a couple of these rotation spots and turn some uncertainty into into more certain uh, production in those spots. So this first deal does exactly that. It's from user KMMA, and it's actually featured on the site right now. So a lot of you might have already seen it. It's a three-team deal between the Angels, Orioles, and Reds. So the Angels acquire Sonny Gray, 28.3, from the Reds. John Means at 41.8 from the Orioles. And out, outfielder TJ Friedel from the Reds at 1.4 million. In exchange for means, the Orioles receive Reed Detmers, left-handed pitching prospect at 29.2, and Jose Suarez, left-handed pitcher for 12.4. So that's 41.8 uh, going out in means, 41.6 coming back in those two lefties. And then for the Reds, they're giving up Friedel and Gray, and they receive Joe Adele at 19 million in median trade value, outfielder, and Sam Bachman, right-handed pitcher at 11.4. So they have 29 points or. Yeah, they have 29.7 heading out and 30.4 heading back. So it's all pretty pretty close to even on, on all of these, about as close as you're going to get. Um, so basically here, the Angels are upgrading those two spots in the rotation, Suarez and Detmers, into Gray and Means. And Means is the big one there. He comes with three years of control, and he looked like an ace for the first half of last year before he got hurt and, and had some up and downs in the second half last year. But he, he's a, a very quality arm, and it's in... Three years of control is pretty significant there, and he's very affordable. Gray, who's more of a, a rock in their rotation, they don't necessarily have, you know, I, I think last year they only had one pitcher 
throw more than 100 innings, and that was Shohei Otani. And he's not exactly a, uh, a picture of clean health for his career. So Gray gives them an option that they can really bank on, you know, 150 innings probably uh, from him. And then Friedel is just a depth outfielder with, you know, a little bit of something there maybe, but he's really more of a depth guy and, and can kind of replace Adele uh, in, in kind of a fourth outfield role for them. So and, and all it costs them is two arms, Detmers and Suarez, and they might be high on Detmers, but he did have a really, really rough debut last season. And he's always seemed like the kind of guy where – it was appealing. He was appealing as a prospect because he looked pretty polished when he was drafted and like he could <laughs> jump to the major leagues tomorrow and be fine. Uh, but he was never really touted as a guy with too much upside beyond that. And that might be changing a little bit. His velocity did tick up while he was in the Angel system. Uh, but it seems like some of the other tools might have taken a small step back as a result of that. And, and like I mentioned, he, he just didn't perform well in the majors in 2021. And if what they want is a contender in 2022, then maybe he's not a guy they're super comfortable penciling in. And then Jose Suarez, who's an interesting, but you know, less reliable, less proven and less exciting starting pitcher option than great or means. So that's who they're giving up uh, for means. And then for, uh, for the, uh, excuse, yeah, excuse me. So that's who they're giving up for means. And then for the gray and Friedel side of the trade, it's Adele who you talked about a lot in your intro there, but, He's kind of shifted when he was first uh, coming onto the scene as a top prospect. He was kind of billed as, you know, the center fielder to take over after Trout. And he was this five-tool threat. And since then, he's kind of morphed into more of a slugging corner outfielder with lots of strikeouts and not as much speed, not as much defense. He's had some issues out there. And as you said, not much of that has really shown itself in the majors. He hasn't put it together yet. And he's still very young, still got plenty of potential, but... Time's running out. Clock's ticking a little bit there. Uh, but on the Reds, they could use all the outfield help they can get, as we just mentioned. And then they also add Bachman, who's um, an interesting rising prospect and could uh, add could be <clears throat> helpful for them in the next couple of years. So there's, there's the Reds' perspective. The Orioles, obviously, they're just giving up means who's their biggest trade ship right now if they're not trading Mullins. And they're adding two really solid young arms, and both of them are either major league ready or close to the majors and that kind of fits with their timeline they want to get things moving right now they're they've been rebuilding for long enough but Adley Rutschman is set to debut this year a couple of their other interesting prospects might make it as well and so it's it's time for the Orioles to start getting some of these players to the big leagues and so this fits that mold um yeah I, th I think that about covers it all the names in this deal and, and all the teams involved I it's a lot of moving parts but I think I like it. I think it's mostly the Angels giving up pieces they can afford to give up. It'll still hurt them, but these are guys they can afford to give up, and they're addressing their biggest needs, and these other two teams involved are also addressing their needs. So I, I think that's why it's been getting so much support all around on the site. So uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I featured it for that reason. I liked it, and I mentioned that in the comments, and not in one of our users also mentioned that it's really two separate trades not really a three-way uh, but that's fine um, we're sort of cramming two separate trades into one deal here um, and as you can see in the user comments everybody seems to agree it makes sense from every team's perspective so i think it's a good one i mean i could nitpick a little bit and say mm, i'm not sure the orioles want suarez they might want a younger <clears throat> excuse me a younger guy with less time um uh time surpassed that is um, I think the Reds would be happy with Adele and Bachman in exchange for Gray. I think the Orioles would be happy with Detmers, just maybe swap out another piece. 
but Suarez is okay because they definitely need somebody need somebody to eat innings this year. So it's not sure they want to use the value of means what if you for just, that purpose. What if you just swapped Bachman and Suarez in this? Have Bachman heading yeah. to the Orioles, more of a prospect. Suarez heading to the yeah. Reds. They want to contend. He'll slot right in. That's a good idea. Um, I'm still processing that. But yeah, the Reds need just a yeah, because there's more certainty with Suarez, but less ceiling. And the Orioles probably want more ceiling, but don't care about certainty right now. So yeah, I think that makes some sense. Um, and, you know, from the Angels' perspective, yeah, they got two solid rocks there in their rotation. That solves a whole heck of a lot of their problems. You know, they still got an outfield problem because they're basically saying goodbye to Adele in that experiment. Um, so they've still got to address that some other way. But, you know, maybe the free agent market can come into play there because we've noted already the starting pitching market's kind of already picked over. There's not much left in the starting pitching market for sort of impact pitchers, unless you think Carlos Rodon is an answer and he's healthy, he's had shoulder issues. You know, the trade market is really where the action is going to be for starting pitching help. And this way they solve it with, you know, by getting two attractive chips and gray and means here. So I think, I think it's, I think it's brilliant actually from the Angels point of view. Um, and I think it works for the two teams as well. So I like it. Yeah, I'm in agreement. I, I think now that I think about it more, I do like it better with Suarez and Bachman swapped. But otherwise, yeah, I'm, I'm on board. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, something a little bit similar. It's another three-team deal that isn't actually a three-team deal. Uh, this is from user MattG4897, and it's between the Angels, A's, and Reds. So again, we have the Angels picking up Sonny Gray from the Reds, 28.3. They're also adding Chris Bassett from the A's at 17, so they're getting 45.3 total. Uh, in exchange, they're sending Reed Detmers to the Reds, so it's just Reds for, or excuse me, it's just Detmers for Gray straight up, and Detmers at 29.2, Gray at 28.3, so the values are pretty even there. I could see the Reds being on board with that. I mean, Detmers isn't quite, you know, plug and play necessarily, but he could be, um, and, and if he's not, he's only a little bit away, so they're just immediately replacing Gray with a, uh, a high upside arm that's higher upside arm, I guess, and a longer term arm that's 10 years younger than him and a whole lot cheaper. So what's not to like about that? And then in Oakland side of it, they are adding Bachman at 11.4, as well as Jaime Berea, at, uh, right-handed pitcher at 2.7, and Griffin Canning, right-handed pitcher at 2.9. So that's perfectly even for them. 17 out for Bassett, 17 in with those three arms. And this one isn't as great of a fit for the A's. Bachman, I think, is an arm they'd have some interest in. They're System is really low on pitching prospects, and he would be a great addition for them. Um, but I don't think both Berea and Canning necessarily make sense. Uh, they're both already major leaguers, which uh, and they are pre-arbitration, so that's fine. But and, and it does make some sense if the A's are trading Manaya, Bassett, Montas. Even if they're trading just one or two of those guys, they're going to need some arms to fill their spots. They really don't have any kind of pitching depth right now. So it makes sense that they would maybe want a guy like Berea or a guy like Canning in the deal, but I don't think both of them makes too much sense. I think they'd rather one of those spots be taken up by, you know, an interesting outfield prospect or, or something like that in that same, you know, two to $3 million value range. Um, and then maybe have the third piece be that major league ready starter to kind of fill right in for Bassett and maybe be a trade chip in a couple of years. So I don't think that end of it makes the most sense, but in general, I think this one also works for me. It, it, it again has the Angels adding two very solid rotation arms, and all they're giving up is, 
you know, a, a prospect down the road in, ba- in Bachman, Detmers, who might not be guaranteed a spot right now anyway, and then Berea Canning, who are really fifth guys at best and, and might start the season in the minors anyway. So I, I think for those reasons it works, but the A side of it has me a little hesitant. Yeah, I... So it's interesting with this one and the last one, you know, the Angels are basically pushing all their chips for win now. And, you know, by trading Detmers and Bachman, they're two kind of big prospect arms. You know, they're basically saying, okay, well, forget the future. Let's focus on today. And they needed to do that anyway, because, you know, time's, time's running out on Trout and Otani. So you got to do that anyway. So I'm okay with that. I just want to point that out, that they're swapping tomorrow for today in their pitching arms for, for these both these deals. Um, but I agree with you also on the A side. I think they'd be okay with one of those depth guys, be it Canning or Berea, maybe Canning a little bit more because he's a little bit younger, or I think so anyway. Anyway, maybe have a little less service time, but not both because they don't want to waste that much trade value on just kind of innings eaters. I think they just want swap out with one of those guys with a prospect that might have a little upside, and then you might have something. Um, but otherwise, I think, yeah, so Bachman, one depth guy, one prospect would do it. Otherwise, I'm okay with it. Also, Berea and Canning, I just double-checked, I they both had injuries last season that I, I think ended both of their seasons. Uh, mm-hmm. Canning's was a lower back stress fracture. Berea's was some shoulder issues. So that could be a bit of a red flag, maybe more so on Berea's part. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, but yeah, I, I think we're in agreement there on that one that one of those spots should probably be replaced by a prospect with all six years of control remaining and and maybe a little bit of upside that the A's might want. Mm -hmm. All right. Now that we've pretty adequately, I'd say, covered their starting pitching options, just some of them, uh, let's shift to shortstop, which I think is getting overlooked by a lot of people because everyone's first thought when they think of the Angels is, oh, they need pitching. Uh, But they really need a shortstop right now, too, as you explained um and so i have a couple options here pulled up one is from user Dejuba. it's surprising that it took us this long to get to one of his proposals but here we are uh and has the the angels acquiring shortstop andres jimenez jimenez from the guardians at 11.7 million as well as right-handed reliever nick sandlin at 7.6 million so that's 19.3 total in exchange for joe adele heading to the guardians um joe adele is a pretty popular fit for the Guardians for really the same reason as the Reds. They're a team that's trying to maybe cut a little salary. Um, if not necessarily cut salary, they're at least definitely not looking to add too much. And so Adele still making the big league minimum makes sense for them. Um, and, and they obviously have a whole lot of outfield space as well, just like the Reds. They they really need a couple outfielders there to round things out. And so they're a team that could take a chance on Adele. They've been a pretty popular landing spot for him for the last couple of years, really, either in, you know, a bigger deal for uh, for Bieber or Ramirez back when Adele's value was much higher, but now in something smaller like this. Um, it works for them also from the perspective of they're giving up two 40-man guys and only getting one back. We uh, John wrote an article about the roster crunch that the Guardians are facing right now. They started to address it prior to the 40-man protection deadline this year but it's only going to continue into next year. So planning ahead, trade two for one, that makes sense for them. And they also have a glut on the middle infield and, and Jimenez is a part of that. So moving him kind of eases that pressure there. Um, I don't know if, if Sandlin is a guy they're really looking to move right now. He seems like a pretty solid relief prospect. And those, you know, there aren't, there aren't too many relief prospects that are really worth mentioning, but 
he's pretty good. Uh, so I don't know if that part of it works for them, but it's obviously very attractive to the Angels. They could use some bullpen help as well. So I don't I don't know how perfect that part of this deal is, but I like the kind of framework there of you know trading Adele to the Guardians for their shortstop solution. Absolutely, I, I love it from that perspective. I think Adele makes a lot of sense in Cleveland. Um, just like the the Angels, that are you, the first thing you think of when you think the Angels are like, pitching up. That's the first thing you think of with Guardians. You think, oh, they need outfield help, which is a constant problem. And so, you know, a change of scenery might actually help Adele with that, and they'll certainly give him enough playing time there to, to try to make his mark. Um, I like Jimenez going to the Angels because, you know, he's sort of a glove-first guy, really a whiz defensively, and they seem to have liked that in the past, having, you know, been they had Jose Iglesias in the past. So that that type of player works for them at shortstop, and certainly the Guardians can afford to lose them with all the infield uh, prospects they have coming up, and there's a bit of a log jam there. So that's easy from their perspective. So the only real question is Sandlin. And Sandlin had a really good debut, and he's looking like another one of these sort of, you know, really strong bullpen arms. But I think, you know, in the in there's got to be a little pain on the Cleveland side if they're getting Joe Adele, and like Jimenez is a no-brainer because he doesn't really have a spot. So like they're trying to squeeze him in second base. He's not really a second baseman. So like that's easy. But if you if you subscribe to the notion that there should be pain on both sides of any sort of quality trade then the pain is going to come from giving up Sandlin. And when you think about it from that perspective, you think, oh, okay, fine. Because, uh, you know, keep in mind, Cleveland is also famous for its pitching development. So it's a next guy up kind of situation. Where'd that guy come from? Oh, it's another Cleveland pitcher. Whether it be the rotation or the bullpen, they have a knack for developing guys. So you maybe look at it that way and say, okay, they lose Sandlin, but somebody else is going to come up and replace him. So I can see, because they're going to need help. The bigger need for them is outfield help. And if you want to give San, uh, Adele's upside a shot, I think this would make sense. Yeah, one caveat to this deal. Uh, stop me if you've heard this one before, but Nick Sandlin ended, ended the season on the injured list with a shoulder issue. Uh, so yeah. hopefully comes back fine from that, but shoulders are always pretty scary. These days they're even, they seem a lot scarier than elbows. Um, but that could be a bit of a hang up here, but also, you know, sometimes, I mean, I mean, part of that is baked into the value. And sometimes you got to take on a little risk with something like that. Um, I'm trying to pull it up right now. The site's being a little bit slow this morning. Oh, there we go. Um, I believe there was another proposal. Yeah, there's another proposal submitted also by Dejuba, which had Adele to the Guardian straight up for Ahmed Rosario, uh, who's at 19.1. So it's a very even deal. And Rosario, uh, we talked about this in the past, how the Francisco Lindor trade to the Mets was really headlined by Andres Jimenez. And then there was Rosario, who was kind of the major league piece on the outs that would be replaced by Lindor. So he was included in the deal. And, you know, a couple notable prospects as well who have risen since then, I believe. But really the big name was Jimenez. And over the last season, those two switched. Rosario was pretty solid for the Guardians and Jimenez's stock fell pretty considerably. So now Rosario is the one who's pretty much penciled in as, as their starting shortstop, I believe. Um, and Jimenez is kind of fighting with some of those other options for the second base spot. So I don't know if that's quite as attractive to the Guardians because they're giving up their starting guy and, and now they have to kind of gamble on some of these more, uh, some of these less proven pieces. Uh, it's probably a bit more attractive to the Angels because, again, they're picking up a more proven guy and and it's, it's interesting to see how the values line up one for one. But 
uh, yeah, I just thought I'd throw that proposal out there as well as kind of an interesting alternative. It is interesting. Um, I'm not sure if Cleveland's ready to give uh, Ahmed Reserve because they just like, oh, they, they just had the pleasure of seeing him kind of win the job back and be an integral piece. And I do think they have notions of competing. Um, you know, they had some setbacks last year with injuries, but I do think they're, they're holding on to, at least as far as we know, Jose Ramirez. You know, still got Bieber. They still got a strong rotation. They've they've got the pieces to be competitive. And certainly, if the new CBA expands the playoff structure a little bit, then you can see them being a wild card team. So, you know, with Jimenez's productivity, they may be thinking, okay, well, um, we want to keep that. On the other hand, as we just mentioned, there's a there's an infield glut. So, maybe you can spare uh, <clears throat> spare Rosario. Um, the Angels could certainly use his productivity. Um, you only got him for two years, but that's fine because you only got Otani for two years at the moment. So you've got the win now as well. So yeah, I, I'm talking myself into it. I think it could make sense. Then you, you know, for Cleveland, you plug Jimenez back in at short, bring up a Tyler Freeman or one of your infield prospects to play second, and you're good. Yeah. All right. Last one for the Angels shortstop. And this is a straight one for one. It is a much, much lower scale de- deal, also from Dejuba, and it has them sending Jaime Berea at 2.7 to the Detroit Tigers in exchange for Willie Castro shortstop at 2.2. This is, you know, much lower end, you know, plan D, plan E kind of thing if they can't get a higher profile shortstop, a more productive one. But Castro is a little bit interesting. He was pretty solid in 2020. Yeah, in the 2020 season, um, it was quite Babbitt fueled and. And definitely not not all that sustainable. He hit 349. That's not happening. And he showed that in 2021 by taking a pretty big step back. But he's got a little pop. He's got pretty decent speed, and he can handle shortstop, switch hitter. Um, it's, it's, like I said, far from plan A for the Angels. But it's an interesting little fallback, and it makes sense from the Tigers. They could use another reliable arm, and I, I don't know if Berea's necessarily... You're not penciling him in for 150, 200 innings, but... He's it's surprising that he's only 24. It feels like he's been around longer. Um, he's a decent arm, though. At worst, he's depth. And uh, I think the Tigers have some other interesting shortstop options, infield options in general, uh, to where they might be willing to make this one. So uh, this, this is far from exciting. It far from solves any of anybody's problems entirely. But it's it's an interesting enough backup that i thought i'd mention really quick yeah it's a i'm glad you did because it's it hats off to to juba because it's it's he's thinking you know a little bit out of the box but also in a very practical way this is one of those trades that you can see very much being realistic like okay it's a need for a need values pretty much match up you know and it doesn't get a lot of publicity or anything but it solves some problems Right now, if you're looking at the, the roster resource depth chart for the Tigers rotation, they signed Eduardo Rodriguez to kind of head the rotation, but they still got those young guys in my Scooball and Manning, who are still sort of unproven, and so you got some question marks there. And then your fifth guy is listed as Tiger, Tyler Alexander, who's sort of a journeyman swingman type. So he's not, you know, you need you need another arm. Now, Bree is not going to, he's not nowhere near an ace. He's a back of the rotation guy, but at least he can get you some innings. And uh, Willie Castro has been replaced at, you know, in the infield by the signing of Javier Baez, who's now their new shortstop. You know, you could think, okay, maybe Castro plays second, but they've got scope there. Um, you know, they're sort of penciling in Spencer Torkelson to play over, uh, play first. Miguel Cabrera's your DH. So you're kind of, you, you're pretty full there on the infield. 
so he's expendable. So, and, you know, and as you said, it's not the first thing that the Angels would look for in a starting shortstop, but it's not the worst idea either. It's not going to be painful for them to give a Berea, so it's a need for a need. So, sure, I'll give it a minute, and yeah, I'll give it a thumbs up. Cool. All right. Um, as as expected, <laughs> we're not going to get to all of these deals, definitely. Um, why don't you real quick preview the Marlins, and then I actually have one that involves the Marlins and the Angels. Okay. Miami Marlins, what are you doing? All right. So they surprised everybody a little bit by making the playoffs in 2020, but it was a bit of a weird season because of COVID and all the shortened stuff. And so you can say, well, in a larger sample size, they probably weren't that good. And they're sort of, you know, Pythagorean numbers were not that good. And certainly in 2021, they sort of reverted back to, okay, they're not that good. Having said that, they've got a lot of young talent. They've got an amazing starting rotation. You know, Alcantara, Rogers, Lopez, guys that are sort of coming up, Sixto Sanchez, and, you know, a few prospects that look really interesting. They've got plenty of priority, um, starting rotation help. So that's their strength. Um, their lineup is not bad either, but it's still very young. They've got guys like Jazz Chisholm. They signed out with Sayo Garcia. But you, you get the sense that they could use a little help. They did trade for Joey Wendell to kind of plug a hole at third base, thinking Brian Anderson, who's been injured lately, could switch over to DH. And you're giving some shots to guys like Brian De La Cruz and, you know, um, Jesus Sanchez, another young guy. They did uh, solve their catcher problem by, by trading for Jacob Stalling. So you get the sense that Kim Ming and her staff are sort of, you know, trying to put the pieces together and really starting to want to go for it this year. But they could probably use another sort of proven bat because um, there's still sort of question marks there. Um, their pitching is very solid. So if they're going to do anything, they're probably going to trade from their rotation depth. Um, their uh, Bolkin is also sneaking, sneaky good. Uh, Dylan Floro had a good year. Anthony Bender looks like a really interesting relief arm that had a good year. Rich Blyer is still Rich Blyer. So they've got some good arms, both in the rotation, the bullpen, and some sort of depth to trade from there. I think they just need another sort of solid offensive piece. All right, so this deal doesn't necessarily have them adding a, an entirely proven offensive piece, uh, but it's it's one that could really help them nonetheless. So this is from user Colmitch22. It's a three-team deal between the Marlins, Angels, and Cardinals. Here the Marlins are adding Joe Adele at $19 million, Slots right into their outfield, high upside, obviously. Um, the Angels are acquiring uh, from the Marlins. They're getting Edward Cabrera, $14.9 million, starting pitching prospect who made his debut in 2021. As well as Paul DeYoung, 4.5 million shortstop from the Cardinals, who has had some issues the last couple years, but and is under team control, already locked into a contract that's only going to increase in price over the next few years. Uh, if he can get his bat turned around, then he's an incredible addition. Uh, but for right now, he's kind of glove, pretty glove first. And as we mentioned, the Angels have been fine with that in the past. And so then the Cardinals, in exchange for DeYoung and getting out of his contract. They're picking up Braxton Garrett, left-handed pitcher from the Marlins, uh, former seventh overall pick who hasn't quite put it together, has lost some of that prospect shine, but debuted in 2020, pitched a, a few more innings in 2021, was successful in 2021 in AAA. It's, he's definitely not the star he used to be, but he's at least interesting and he's at least pitching depth. Uh, and they're also adding George, yeah, Jordan McCants, who is a teenage infielder uh, from the Marlins, who has only uh, played in a part of the 2021 season in 
CPX, that's complex ball, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> and he's a 35 plus FB by Fangraph. So really, you know, long-term lottery ticket, throw in whatever, even out the values. Uh, so he's at 2.1, Garrett's at 2.6. So here are the Angels, uh, from their perspective of it, just to wrap them up. Uh, as I mentioned, they're adding their shortstop into Young. There aren't a whole lot of trade options available for shortstops in general, so this might be one of the better ones they can grab if they're not going to spend money on Correa or Story. Um, you know, DeYoung hasn't hit the last couple years, and, and that's going to be the biggest question mark for him if, if he has much of a bat left. He's a solid shortstop defensively, but it is a decent chunk of money to commit to a guy if he's not going to be hitting. <laughs> it's it's $27.5 million uh, for the next four years, but he is still... In his right years, he's, he's 27, so there's still reason to believe there. And, and like I said, the Angels, maybe they can't do a whole lot better. And then Cabrera, I don't think he quite fits what they're looking for right now. He could be a guy they, you know, turn around and flip for a more established starting pitcher. He might have some interest to, I don't know, the A's or the Reds in a, in a Gray or Bassett deal or something like that. Uh, but if not, he could be, if they did, did decide to hang on to him, he could be kind of a swing man for them, you know have some relief outings as well as make some starts. He's got really great stuff and, and all that it takes to miss bats and really dominate, but hasn't found the zone much. Um, it's especially in his major league debut, he walked 6.49 batters per nine. That's not, not very good. Um, and he's not necessarily the guy that I think the Marlins are, I don't think he's at the top of their list of those starting pitchers to trade. I think that guy's Eliezer Hernandez. Um, and maybe you could argue that Hernandez makes more sense for the Angels since he's more of an established major league piece, can eat some innings. Um, he's not as high in value as Cabrera, so you'd have to add another piece heading from Miami to the Angels in this deal specifically. And I think they're shooting a little bit higher than him for their rotation solution. Um, so I don't think that the starting pitcher to the Angels portion of this trade doesn't quite work out as cleanly as the rest of it. Uh, but then from the Marlins' perspective, they're giving up one of their... Uh, rotation one member of the rotation glut and a couple prospects that aren't too integral to their long-term picture and they're adding uh, a lot of upside and uh, a sort of plug-and-play outfielder in Adele so I I'm like I said I'm not entirely sold on this one because of that pitching an angle for the Angels uh, but otherwise it's interesting and I like DeYoung as a fit for them and I like Adele as a fit for the Marlins I'm pretty much in agreement with you. I really like Adal as a fit for the Marlins as well because they have he fits their timeline. They're just kind of, you know, I mentioned they need a more established bat. Well, they just signed Avisel Garcia, so I might backstep on that one a little bit um, because Adele is, you know, we obviously this is becoming the Joe, the Joe Adele show. <laughs> We've talked enough about it, but I, I could see him sort of um, getting enough playing time and 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 jiving with the Jazz Chisholms and other guys on that roster to kind of form a young core. So I like it from that perspective. I like DeYoung as a shortstop option in LA. I, I agree with you. He's probably not their first option given the struggles he's had with the bat lately. But, you know, I, as we said before, you know, the defense is there and they seem to do just fine with that. So I think that makes sense. And I think the Marlins, you know, given their pitching depth, would have no problem trading either one of those guys. Uh, Braxton Garrett just hasn't quite been the guy that they'd hoped for so his value is fairly low um so and i don't think um you know i think they've got plenty to 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 trade from you mentioned elise or hernandez uh had a lot of injury issues and has not been great he's sort of a depth starter but his value is also reflective of that 
Uh, I know he's not part of this deal, but I, I also just sort of want to make the point that, yes, he seems the obvious candidate to trade, but the reason there's he's probably not in this deal is because of those issues. And so maybe they would look to trade, you know, these two guys um, as, as sort of a substitute for that. And they've still got plenty of other depth to, to do. So I think my point is I like it overall. I'm okay with the guys the Marlins are giving away. I like Adele in the Marlins and I like DeYoung and the Angels. So, yeah, I'm good. All right. I'm going to continue to pick up the pace here because I at least want to get through the Marlins and the Rays. Okay. Um, next deal between the Marlins and Mariners, also sub, uh, also submitted by Inferno007. We had a deal from him a little bit earlier. This one's interesting in that it's not necessarily you know the, the simple, oh, this team needs X, this team needs Y, let's make that trade because it's the obvious one. But it does also make a lot of sense. So this has the Mariners acquiring Brian Anderson from the Marlins at $11.5 million third baseman slash outfielder in exchange the marlins are acquiring jake fraley outfielder at 2.7 adam macko left-handed pitching prospect at uh, 5.7 and starlene aguilar uh infield prospect at 3.8 million so 12.2 headed to the marlins 11.5 to the mariners uh, the Mariners have a gap at third base after Kyle Seeger's retirement and they could just slide Abraham Toro in there but I think they're looking for another bat Anderson's last couple years in Miami haven't gone well he's been injured his offensive performance hasn't been quite what they want from him but he's still a valuable player he's still got some versatility he's still affordable um, I think he'd be an attractive guy for the Mariners to grab but right now on roster resource he's actually slotted in as the Marlins DH uh, pending pending the DH headed to the National League um, and that's because they have Joey Wendell slotted in at third base instead who the Marlins acquired from the Rays early in the offseason so I think Anderson could be on the outs. That could make some sense for the Marlins to do. And this isn't necessarily, you know, this isn't the perfect return for the Marlins. It's not, oh, and there's the bat that we wanted or, or whatever. Uh, but it makes sense. It, it's Jake Fraley who has shown some flashes at times. He's really just a fourth outfielder. But, you know, he's you could do a lot worse in that position. And, and they could use a little bit of depth out there. And then two interesting prospects. Aguilar is a teenager. It's going to be a little while before we really see what he has to bring to the table. Uh, and then Mako is also in the lower minors, but he's really interesting, pretty well regarded. Um, and he can be kind of that next wave or or either of these guys, again, could just be trade chips down the road to help fill what their actual needs are. It's more about you know finding a new home for Anderson than it is necessarily about also perfectly filling the Marlins' needs. Uh, and maybe the Mariners shoot a little higher. Maybe they try and sign Trevor Story, trade for Matt Chapman, whatever. But if they don't, I think this could make sense for them as their third base answer. I don't love this one, to be honest, because um, I think they traded for Toro in the at the deadline, you know, with the, you know, with the forced sense, if you will, that he's going to be their future third baseman, knowing that Seager was going to be gone. And I think they want to give him a shot. And he certainly has had numbers at times. And certainly his projections would suggest that he deserves a shot to be their everyday third baseman. And so I don't necessarily think they need Brian Anderson. Furthermore, I just made the point that the Marlins could use one more established bat. And Brian Anderson, despite his troubles lately, largely injury-related, is an established bat. So the last thing I want to do is give up an established bat. I think they have the opposite problem. And, you know, that's why they traded for Wendell and Stallings to get a little bit more veteran sort of presence, if you will, on that team. So I don't think they'd want to necessarily lose him. And he also, he's, he's a Marlins guy through and through. He was like in their lean years. He was like the one guy that was producing like two, three years ago. So I think they like him as a fit there. 
Um, and I also don't think they need Mako. Mako is an interesting pr uh, prospect, but I don't think they need him. Um, they got plenty of you know pitching depth, as we just mentioned. So um, you know, I, I I don't see them pulling the trigger on this one, and I don't think the Mariners necessarily need to either. So because the Mariners want to keep as much of their sort of prospect uh, capital as they you know they haven't quite gotten to the next level yet, and they need to see that future wave develop before they can really say, okay, who are we keeping, and who are we not. So I don't think this one makes sense actually for either team. I think I can, I can agree on some of those points on the on the Marlins side that you know Anderson's been their guy and and they need all the offense they can get right now. So maybe that doesn't make the most sense. And and also I misspoke earlier. He was actually very productive in 2020. It was just the 2021 season that was a bit disappointing. Um, so correction there. Uh, but I think he's he's not. I think I also shouldn't have referred to him as, as you know, the, the Mariners just third base answer because, you know, the, the outfield versatility helps there too. They have um, their outfield right now is, is Mitch Hanniger locked into a corner spot. And then it's, you know, whatever happens with Kelnick and however long it takes Julio Rodriguez to debut. So I think there's room there for some flexibility of, you know, maybe today Toro starts at third base and Anderson's in a corner outfield spot. Maybe tomorrow Toro slides over to first base or he gets the day off and Anderson's at third base. So I think there's there's room to, there to make it work. It's not necessarily the perfect deal. And I think uh, you made some really good points on why it doesn't make the most sense for the Marlins end of things. But I think he could fit the, the Mariners roster. All right. I'll give you that. Compromise. Love it. <laughs> okay. Here's a quick one. Also from Cole Mitch 22, Twins and Marlins. This is more of me... This is this is an example of one I don't like. So so this is uh, straight one for one. Max Meyer, right-handed pitching prospect at 22.2 million, is headed to the Twins in exchange for Max Kepler at 23.6 million, outfielder for the Marlins. Um, so the Marlins, kind of their biggest target for the last year and a half or so, or really since they traded Starling Marte um, and and kind of gave up on extending him. Their biggest target was a long-term center field option. And Kepler isn't that, but he might be the best they can do there. Um, we don't really, we talked a bit about it a bit before we started recording. Um, maybe we can get into it a little bit here now. We don't think it's super likely that the Pirates trade, uh, excuse me, that the Pirates trade Brian Reynolds. He's just so high in value. And I think at some point here, they're going to start looking forward to the pieces they want around when they're big prospects make it to the majors and you know the, the kind of existing core they want those project prospects to be adding on to and, and forming the next competitive pirates team and i think reynolds might be that first guy reynolds and cabrian hayes are those two that they try to build around or even if not it's just such a difficult time to trade for reynolds with how high his value is they'll the other teams will need to wait another year until it's affordable for them to to pick him up and then kind of the same story with the Orioles and Cedric Mullins, really almost the exact same thing. So I don't think either of those center field options are going to be too attractive to the Marlins. I think they just have to pay so much for them. And after that, there's not a whole lot out there. I don't think Kevin Kiermeyer makes sense for them. Ramon Laureano is also pretty expensive right now, and he's coming off the suspension. So question marks there. So I don't know if there's a very obvious solution. You know, Kepler doesn't have a great spot with the Twins. They have Buxton locked in in center field for now, and obviously that's not going to be for 162 games every season. But they've committed to him. He's their guy in center. And in the corner spots, they have prospects they really like. Uh, Alex Kirilov, Trevor Larnack, uh, Luis Arias is going to play some left field probably. So their outfield situation is pretty full. 
Kepler's making some money, he seems like the obvious one to go, and he can handle center. Uh, he's not necessarily a primary center fielder, but he can handle it. Offensively, the bat's been in decline for a couple years, though, and that's why I that's why I'm a little bit lower than on Kepler than our values might be. I tend to agree pretty strongly with the values because you know I I trust the system; it works. But I think I'm a little lower on Kepler than than we have him uh, on the values perspective. We have him twenty three point six. I I don't quite see it. Um, and so for the for that reason mainly, um, I mean I love this deal from the Twins perspective. They get out from some money, trade a player they don't really need anymore, and add a really high upside pitching prospect. Um, but from the Marlins, I just feel like it would be a mistake. Yeah, I totally get your point on Kepler, and you know it's one of those sort of, um, you know, gut reactions. But then also sort of there's a difference between like your first reaction is like oh, he's not that good anymore, but then if you actually look at the numbers, like oh actually maybe he is, because uh, his peripherals are still very strong. Um, he is if you look at his ex woba numbers, um, you might think twice. Um, he had a 3.47 ex woba. Previous years were 3.38, 3.39. You know. And so they don't always correlate. If you look at WRC numbers, yes, he's in decline. He went from 122 in 2019 down to 107 in the short in 2020, down to 95, which is a nug, in 2021. But his ex-Woman numbers, which I, I, you know, play a role in our model, they've been pretty much consistent. He's banging the ball, 339, 338, 347 in those last three years. So uh, if anything, he ticked up. So, you know, and I know that the surface numbers went down a little bit. The batting average went down to 211. OBP is only, only 306. But, you know, um, not quite as lucky on the BABIP side. It was a little bit lower. So maybe you just think, okay, you got a little bit lucky. But he's still very sort of consistently a two-ish player as a floor. And so that's worth something. And his contract is very team friendly. And then I think that there's a case to be made. And I, I love how you took the detour off the interstate over to Pittsburgh and Baltimore on your way to Miami. But I think it's, uh, I think it's a, it's, I think he's actually a realistic, sh you know, case as a fit for Miami. I think they could maybe use him there. Um, so I like it. Now the one question is, do they want to give up Myers upside to fill that hole with a good player not great player in Kepler you know and that's a question but I think as we've talked about earlier they've got plenty of pitching depth to choose from so they they would barely miss Meyer Meyer also has a lot of relief risk a lot of prospect evaluators are sort of cool on him because of that like he doesn't really he's not really built like a starter and he brings the heat and everything but he's you know maybe he's a future closer so it may not be that painful to give him up to fill a need if they really want to seriously contend you get a two-war player at a Kepler at a friendly contract. It's not bad. You got him for a couple of years too, so he'll fit with your window. You know, I I'm I'm okay with this deal. There was a pretty good article in the Athletic, and I'm blanking on who it was by. I, I will link to it if I remember in the in the show notes here. Uh, but it was a couple months ago about kind of why Kepler has been struggling and why his numbers don't match his expected performance, why he's a low BABIP guy. And it's, it boils down to, you know, kind of what you expect that he's a pull happy. He pulls a lot of ground balls into the shift and doesn't quite have the power to, and fly ball rate to compensate. So I think that could be an argument for why his BABIP is going to stay low. I don't know if, I don't know if quite 225 low, <laughs> uh, but, but you know, he's, he's a career 248 BABIP guy. It's not like he's ever been near that 300 mark. Uh, he, he only even came close to it one year, 276, his career high, and back in 2017. So you figure he hovers around the 240, 250 BABIP mark, and, and maybe he's a guy who 
just will kind of underperform his ex-Woba. And I know 2021 was the first year that he significantly did. So maybe that's another point in his favor that he will rebound closer to uh, his expected numbers. But just a, I don't know. I don't hate the guy. <laughs> and, and I think he could work. Um, I don't know. I just don't quite see it all the way. Fair enough. <laughs> all right. One last Marlins deal. This has them acquiring Cattell Marte from the uh, Arizona Diamondbacks at $37.3 million in exchange for Edward Cabrera, $14.1. Yuri Perez, right-handed pitcher at $18.6 and a, a real breakout arm in their system this year. And infielder Jose Salas at $7 million. So it's 40.5 headed to the D-backs, 37.3 headed to the Marlins and Marte. This deal proposed by Slateman, uh, user Slateman. And the D-backs, uh, they have a lot of offensive prospects coming up, and they have some arms as well, but the arm, the, the pitching development hasn't gone quite as well, so I could see this working for them from that perspective. They had two really high upside arms in Cabrera and Perez, and then an interesting longer-term shortstop option in Salas. Um, but I, I, I really wonder just in general, and I should, probably should have mentioned this along with Reynolds and Mullins, uh, but I really wonder if the D-backs are looking to trade Cattell Marte right now. Um, he's at not a low point of his value necessarily because he's still just very good, but the injuries the last couple years have made things a little dicey and teams may be a little bit more hesitant to give up a, a massive package for him. And they, they love him in, uh, in Arizona. And he's, again, I think they expected to be a lot better in 2021 than they were. I don't think they're really about to commit to full rebuild right now by trading a guy like him. I think they really want to compete in the next couple of years, whether that's realistic or not. I think they want to, and I think they want him there for that. And he is just still so young and still so productive when he's on the field. Uh, I, I think from a fit perspective, it makes sense on both sides. It's, it's just the question of whether the D-backs are ready to move him. I mostly like this one because um, I think it fills needs, well, to some degree. And I'm going to tell you why. So, all right. So, first of all, Cattell Marte, I'm glad you brought up a trade with him because I want to talk about him. Um, I agree with your points. Um, you know, if you surf Twitter and you you know see proposals involving him and you see commenters saying, wow, he's going to take a haul and everything – I think you and I agree. It's not quite the same value as he was two years ago. Uh, he's down to three years control, assuming the options are picked up. Um, but look, they tried him in center field. He wasn't very good in center field. And then so he's now a second base only guy, realistically. And that hurts his value, as we've talked a lot about, because second base only guys are not highly valued by the market, unless they have the, the bat to prove it. And he does. But the other red flag is he's got these persistent hamstring injuries which have slowed him down a bit and so and that's another reason why he's back at second base so now you're dealing with a second base guy who doesn't run as well may get injured again because hamstring injuries tend to tend to do that and he's not really going to play center field so those teams looking for the center field option he's probably not your guy so you got a second base option great bat still athletic um you know, but he's second base only. So, okay, there's surplus there, but it's not as much as it was a couple of years ago. Um, given that, <clears throat> I'm not sure how he's going to solve the Marlins problems because he's not really their center fielder. So he's, he's second base only, then he's going to bump Jazz Chisholm. Well, where do you play him? You got Jose Ross, Miguel Ross, excuse me, at, at shortstop. So now I'm not sure where the fit is unless they figure it out with the DH. But then you've got a, another problem with value because you don't want to trade for a DH. 
So what are you, where are you going to play? Is 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 the problem on the Marlins side? Um, and on the D-back side, you might get a better fit package. Now, I think this is a perfectly fine package. Those two pitchers are really good, um, but you're also taking on some risk because when you headline with two prospects that are pitchers, you know they could both bust because pitchers, as we know, get injured a lot. You know, and they're they're higher variance prospects. So if you're giving up Kill Marte. If you're Arizona, you probably want your lead prospect to be a position player with a little less risk. Um, so you have your big chip at least brings back some certainty of not being a bust. Having said that, I agree that you, with your points that you probably need arms as well. So I'm sort of iffy on the return. I like the return from a talent and value perspective. I'm just not sure if two pitchers, you know, maybe you swap out one of those pitchers with, with a position player and you might have something. Um, but I'm struggling with it the more I think about it with Marte to the Marlins because I don't think he's a center fielder going forward. So I'm kind of out on this one. Yeah, that's the big question there. And then just whether, you know, the lack of other center field options forces the Marlins to commit to him being a center fielder, you know, like uh, if, if he's the best they can do. Um, kind of along the lines of Kepler where he is more of a corner guy. But if they're trading for him, it's because they need a center fielder so so desperately that they're going to try him out there. I mean, they when they signed Avisail Garcia, they said they might try him in center field, and that sounds like a disaster. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I, I'm in agreement with Marte being a second baseman long term and, and that being his best fit. Uh, but I I think a lot of teams are willing to push it in center field. I think that's his that's obviously his more attractive position. Um, for teams like the Marlins, the Yankees, and, and you know, Phillies, some others. But, yeah, I'm, I'm in agreement with you there. All right. Uh, we are, as expected, over on time. Um, are you good to run through the Rays article real quick and then call it an episode? Sure. Sweet. Uh, I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll discuss a little bit more after uh, whether we're going to make a fourth part of this <laughs> to get to these handful of deals that we didn't get to today. Phillies, D-backs, uh, White Sox. But and maybe a couple other teams but for now let's let's wrap up with the rays so i wrote an article i'm always on here telling you guys about the articles john wrote but this time i did it so cool yay (laughs) i wrote an article uh it's a new series calling roster revamp and it's it's essentially it's it's pretty similar to these episodes that we've been doing recently but it's uh it's picking a team kind of outlining what they've done so far what they still need what kind of players they have to give up and then what they could do and, and filling out that what they could do part with user proposals. So kind of piecing together a few user proposals that I like into one coherent off-season plan. So, you know, I can't have two proposals where if, if I was doing the A's, I couldn't have two different Sean Mania trade proposals there or two different proposals that include Tony Kemp as a secondary piece or whatever. It's got to be coherent. You know, they can make all of these trades and this puts them in a good spot at the end of the off-season. Um, so I started out doing so with the Tampa Bay Rays, who are always so fun because they just they they do weird stuff. <laughs> they don't always do the thing that's most expected of them. Um, and just just quickly kind of profiling where they are right now, they're obviously in a great spot in both the short and long term. They are, uh, I believe, they were the best team in the American League last season, and uh, or based on regular season record. And obviously, they have such a strong farm. They have so much young talent at the big league level. Uh, this offseason so far, the biggest thing they did was extend Wander Franco. Uh, that obviously doesn't have too much of an impact on the 2022 season because he was there anyway, but he's going to be around for the next 11 years or so, so that's good for them. 
Um, on the addition side, they've signed Corey Kluber to a one-year contract. They've signed Brooks Raley to a two-year deal. And they've made their usual 40-man shuffling move. So they traded away Jordan Luplo, Joey Wendell, Lewis Head, Brent Honeywell Jr., Mike Rosso, and Tobias Myers. And so all of those guys left for either you know smaller prospects. Um, the, the biggest return they got there was Cameron Misner, outfield prospect from the Marlins. Uh, but otherwise, it was mainly, you know, cash considerations, lower minors prospects, and, and just clearing 40-man space, and because that's just what they always have to do. Uh, but as a result of some of those moves and just losing Michael Waka, Chris Archer, David Robertson, Colin McHugh to free agency, team really needs some pitching. Um, they could really use some reliability in the starting rotation. Right now, it's Shane Boz and Shane McClanahan who are fronting it, and those are two excellent talents, but just not guys that you necessarily trust it's, it's going to be their first full season in the big leagues. And so you can't really expect 180 innings out of either of them. Um, and then beyond that, it's more young talent uh, and, and Kluver who you're also not expecting, you know, 150, 200 innings out of anymore. He's, uh, he's really taking a step back, but he's a, he's going to be a decent back end arm for them, at least with some upside. It's just how much of that performance can you expect from him? And they've also lost a couple bullpen pieces and I didn't, dabble too much in the bullpen area of it uh within this article because you know the rays are so fantastic at just identifying the next reliever before anyone else and so they'll pick up a guy on a minor league deal and he'll be you know handling the eighth inning for them in october (laughs) so i'm not going to try and predict that i'm going to leave that to them Uh, so those are their main motivations they also could cut some payroll as as the rays do Uh, those two obvious candidates there are kevin kiermeyer and ryan yarbrough kiermeyer they just have some internal candidates to replace him and we have his contract is a little underwater at negative 2.8 million um, and they have Brent, uh, brett phillips who's a solid defensive center fielder left-handed bat like kiermeyer who could replace him they have manuel margot who's a solid defender uh, right-handed bat so maybe the two of them platoon and then long term they have josh lowe who's coming up and, and is really their long-term answer at the position and should be ready early in 2022 so paying kiermeyer the money he's owed doesn't necessarily make the most sense for them right now and then Ryan Yarbrough, who is in his first year of arbitration, I'm pretty sure. Um, it might be his second, actually. He might be a Super 2 guy. But either way, he's projected to earn you know, some real money for the first <laughs> first time in his career. So he's projected to earn $4.6 million in arbitration. And he's 30 now. He was really their, their bulk guy, their follower, um, after you know opening with Sergio Romo or, <laughs> or whoever it was at the time. And he was very successful in that role, but he really took a step back in 2021. And, you know, there's just not as much of a fit for that on the roster right now, especially at that cost. And they have so many young arms that are going to be ready soon. And just in general, I think they're going to want to do better than him. Uh, As far as like what they have to offer, they're supremely deep in middle infield prospects. They have some pitching prospects as well, but they've had some injuries there and might want to hang on to some of those guys for depth. But they have so many middle infield prospects. You know, Wander Franco and Brandon Lau are inked onto the diamond at some at some spot, whether that's shortstop, second base, or Franco longer term moves to third base, Brandon Lau moves to first base, whatever. There's two of the four outfield spots are, are given to, or infield spots, excuse me, are, are given to those two guys. And then past them, they got Vidal Brujan, Taylor Walls, Xavier Edwards, Greg Jones, Carlos Colmenares, Willie Vasquez, Alika Williams, Cooper Kinney, Alejandro Pie. They they have so many uh, infield prospects and so many different levels of it, you know, far from the majors, major league ready, in between, whatever. So they really got 
that that's their main position to deal from for these additions. And, uh, and yeah, there's a couple other names that have come up. Tyler Glass now, Austin Meadows. I'll get into one of those a little later, but let's, I've been rambling long enough. You guys understand the Rays. Let's get into the first deal. Uh, first one, I had them adding Sean Manaya from the A's. We have him at 18.5 million in exchange for Carlos Colmenares, 10.8 million infield prospect, Josh Fleming, 6 million and, uh, Michael Mercado at 1 million right-handed pitching prospect. So in this deal, they're adding a rental starting pitcher arm and, and one of the less expensive ones. I, I went into this in, in the article. I explained why I think Manaya is a better fit for them than Bassett. It has to do with their times for the order, order penalties, but I'll let you guys go ahead and read that one since we're already running so long. Uh, but I think Manaya or just in, in general, a rental starting pitcher makes sense for them since they have so many longer term rotation options. It's really they just need some innings covered in 2022 so those young guys can get healthy, get ready. Uh, plus, I don't think they're a team that's willing to break the bank in prospects for a Luis Castillo. I don't think that's their MO. It never really has been. So I think uh, making a smarter addition like Manaya, a guy that they can maybe, depending on whether the rules change in the offseason, they can offer him a qualifying offer and recoup some of that value in a draft pick. I think that makes a whole lot of sense for them. And then the return for Oakland, Coleman Ares is going to be a longer-term shortstop option, uh, but tons of upside there. And, and he's coming off a handmade injury. The A's have been known for grabbing some of these prospects coming off of injuries with, with upside and kind of gambling there. They did it with Jesus Lazardo. Um, they did it with, uh, there was another name too. Uh, Franklin Barreto even, uh, not, not so much the injury side of it, but just grabbing him while he was so young and, and the, uh, the, excuse me, while he was so young and, and the upside was so high. And then Fleming is kind of a swing man, uh, left-handed pitcher. He's, he's big league ready right now. Uh, and kind of just makes sense for them as kind of a, a longer-term option to replace Manaya or Bassett or whoever they trade. Uh, slot right in. He's not going to miss many bats, and he's not going to knock your socks off. He never will, but he could get some outs in the Coliseum. And then Mercado is just kind of, you know, third piece. He's Rule 5 eligible, but the A's have more than enough 40-man space to add him, and, and he could be a bit of a, a project for them. It could be in the big leagues in the next couple of years, so... First one there, Manaya for Colmenares, Fleming, and Mercado. I like it. Um, I, I think you're right about it fitting the Rays' mo, uh, getting a rental pitcher. You know, if you look at what they did last year, they signed Rich Hill and Michael Waka to one-year deals. These are sort of veteran guys who helped kind of eat some innings, but also sort of pitched the Rays' way, and they got the most out of them. Manaya is a crafty lefty who knows how to work the corners. I think they'll like that. Um, and as you mentioned. You know, they can always, you know, assuming the QO sticks around and that's a big assumption, they can still get a draft pick later after, uh, if they do that. Not sure if they will or not, but he's eligible for that. So anyway, I like it for the Rays. I like it for the A's, particularly with Colmenares as sort of an upside guy. That's going to be the excitement factor. Fleming, I'm wishy-washy on it for the A's, but at least he'll eat some innings and maybe... You know, he's a guy you can trade two years down the road if you need to or when or whenever if he sort of if you get the best out of him like they did with Cole Irvin. So he's one of those guys. Um, so and as you mentioned before, the A's can certainly use the innings. So I think this works for both teams. Yeah, and it's a let's see. So Mania is projected to earn 10.2 million in arbitration this year, and that's a little high for the Rays, but I have them getting some money off the books in the next two deals that I proposed here. So okay. first one. Okay is them offloading both Kiermaier and Yarbrough to the Phillies. So we have Kiermaier at negative 2.8 million and Yarbrough at 4.5. Oh, uh, excuse me. 
before I move on, I should mention that that first deal came from Grover, who is a longtime site user and noted A's fan. Uh, so this one is from an unnamed user, actually. I think maybe their account got deleted or, or something Something happened there. So can't credit this one. Sorry. Uh, but Kiermaier and Yarbrough to the Phillies. Kiermaier at negative 2.8 million in value. Yarbrough at 4.5. So it totals out to 1.7 headed to the Phillies. And then left-handed pitching prospect Eric Miller to the Rays at 2.8 million. So the Phillies need to improve their defense. They need a center fielder. Two birds with one stone. You do that with Kiermaier. That's pretty easy. The money doesn't matter quite as much to them. Uh, they're still probably not, unless he had some big season, they're not going to exercise his second-year team option, so it's it's more of a rental, uh, but they can afford that. And then Yarbrough, they could also use some more innings, more back-end innings. Um, I don't think, I think Yarbrough is the one hang-up on this deal. He's not a perfect fit for the Phillies because he is more of a pitch-to-contact guy, and for right now, their defense, even adding Kiermaier, leaves a lot to be desired. Uh, you, you wonder if, you know, in addition to this, they can add Matt Chapman or some sort of a defensive upgrade at shortstop over DD Gregorius, who's taken a step back and, and they're still going to, they're still going to need to make some moves after this deal for sure, because the Phillies just have a lot of holes to address, but this is an easy way for them to address a couple of those holes without giving much up in terms of prospects. The other Yarbrough issue is that he isn't going to go deep into games. He never has. And so you're going to be during his starts. If he's only going five innings, that's four innings that need to be covered by the bullpen. And the Phillies have notoriously had weaker bullpens. Um, so I don't, so Yarbrough isn't quite the perfect fit. It'll require some more tinkering on the Phillies end to make it work. But on the other side of things, they've shown a willingness to do that. They have Kyle Gibson that they just traded for and they they're building the rotation around Aaron Nola, who's also a bit more of a contact pitcher than the average pitcher of his caliber so they they already have guys in the rotation that they're going to need to upgrade the defense for so maybe that makes it easier to add another one of those guys if it's kind of already in their plans excuse me um the raise end of things they add miller who's an interesting enough left-handed pitching prospect could be a guy that they shift to the bullpen because he's had some injuries and some control issues maybe he's a decent reliever for them down the road but importantly doesn't need to be added to the 40 man until next season. So doesn't add to that crunch at all. They're actually removing two guys from the 40 man in this deal and helps them make some free agent additions or anything like that. They're also saving a whole lot of money in this deal. And really I'll, I'll let you, uh, I'll let you give your take on this. And then I have one last note on it. Okay. I love this from the race perspective. It just strikes me as a very razy, if that's a word trade, um, the clearance salary with Kiermaier, they're, you know, just doing their churn thing here with Yarbrough and they'll bring the next man up. You know, the return is very much in their, in their wheelhouse with a young pitcher who doesn't need to be out of the 40. So that's what they do. Um, perfect fit from a race perspective. From the Phillies perspective, yes, they need a center fielder. Dombrowski obviously loves veterans and doesn't mind paying for them. So I can see Kiermaier being a fit there provided he's healthy, which is why his, his value is a little bit under. You know, um, he's never been a big offensive guy. You're going to bat him eighth or ninth in the order. Um, but he can certainly handle center field for you uh, as long as he stays healthy, which has been a little bit more of an issue as he's gotten older. He's 31 now, um, maybe even 32 this year. Yarbrough, okay, you forgot to mention Zach Wheeler, Josh. So, you know, and he had a Cy Young caliber year here. So you got a rotation of Wheeler, Nola, who, by the way, some people think he didn't have a good year. He did when you look at the advanced metrics. He was his usual self. He's very good. Wheeler, Nola, Ranger Suarez had a breakout year, like well, amazing year. 
Gibson, a solid three starter who's really your fourth starter. Uh, so Yarbrough is just a back in the innings guy, even swingman for you. And oh, by the way, you're getting Zach Eflin back from injuries, so maybe he's your fifth guy and Yarbrough's your swingman. So, you know, it's not a it's not a must-have for them, but it's a depth guy for them. So you can see it working for the Phillies too. I'll mention that I didn't point out Wheeler or Suarez because they miss bats, and I was I was more just listing the guys Got who it. didn't. But I'm okay. also apparently I have no idea who Aaron Nola actually is because apparently he he misses more bats than Wheeler. I <laughs> was not aware. All I all I, I I was going off of the fact that I know his defense just seriously let him down in 2021. Yeah, Wheeler's didn't. So I kind of assumed oh Wheeler doesn't pitch the contact as much. I was wrong. Uh, Wheeler just got luckier than Nola did. Nola got horrendously unlucky. We're talking 463 ERA for Nola, but his XERA, FIP, and XFIP were all 337. Mm-hmm. Right in line is... with his usual self. Exactly. So he's, like like you said, he's a stud. Just they need to improve the defense around him. Totally. Um, the one last point I wanted to make about this trade was that there's a similar proposal I considered from user JetWolf90 that had Kiermaier and Yarbrough headed to the Rangers for a corner infielder, Shirt and Apostle, at uh, 2.4 million. So it, it still works out in uh, mm-hmm. in uh, in terms of value. Uh, but I don't think the fit is quite as good. I mean, Texas also needs an outfielder. They could also improve their defense, and they also need starting pitching. Uh, they also have the same bullpen issue as the Phillies when it comes to Yarbrough, but you know, like the Phillies, you kind of expect them to address it in free agency trades, whatever, over the next a couple, uh, well, as soon as the lockout ends, over the weeks after that. Uh, but I didn't like the return nearly as much for the Rays. Shirt and Apostle is a corner infielder who's really on the decline, really not showing a whole lot. Uh, he's in the higher minors and he's on the 40-man roster. So I mean, the Rays yeah. could use some corner infield help. But he's not that. He's just more of, you know, another warm body depth type that would have to be added to the 40 man immediately. So I don't like that quite as much. Agreed. Yeah, and I don't I'm not sold on Kiermaier. Sorry to jump in here uh, to the Rangers either, because he's sort of on his last legs and he doesn't quite fit their sort of up and coming window, which I don't think they're going to be quite competitive in 2022, but they're really going to be going for it with Gusto in 2023, at which point he'll be probably done. I don't see his 2023 option being picked up. So, like, you're basically just wasting value on and money on a guy who yeah, you probably don't need in 2022 only. I think the argument is, you know, they want to give themselves a chance to contend early if they if they luck into it, kind of. And he's not costing you all that much in the grand scheme of things in money or prospects. So I could, I could see it from that angle. All right. And, and teams typically don't carry over payroll year to year. So it's not, you know, spending $12 million this year isn't is 12 million. You can't spend next year, that right. kind of thing. Right. And might put a couple more butts in the seats. All right. Last one I had here was kind of, was, the, was the big move. It's, it's the more raisy, you know, make a splash, surprise some people, jump the gun kind of thing. And so it has them trading Tyler Glass now to the Astros. Uh, Glass now at $27.8 million in median trade value. They're also trading Matt Whistler here, reliever, $1.9 million. Uh, so 29.7 heads to the Astros. In exchange, they're getting Corey Lee, catching prospect, 22.5. Chaz McCormick, outfielder, 8.9. And Inoli Paredes, right-handed pitcher, at zero. So 31.4 headed back to the Rays. And my reasoning here, and the reason that Glasnow's name has been coming up every now and then, is that Glasnow has two years of control remaining. He's set to make $6 million this season in arbitration, but he's not going to pitch. He, he might get a couple innings at the end of the season, but he he underwent Tommy John surgery late in the year last year, 
And so 12 months, he's more more than likely not going to pitch at all in the 2022 season. And so that's a lot of value that's just gone <laughs> because of the injury there. And so what you're what you're looking at after that is a year of Tyler Glass now. It's going to cost you his six million salary for 2022 plus you know probably a slight raise on that. So you know maybe another seven or eight million. So we're talking 13 or 14 million dollars total that the Rays are committing to this one year of Glass now. And you don't really know what you're getting from him in that 2023 season. Um, we've talked a lot on the podcast about how after Tommy John surgery, there's kind of a reset period where it, it takes guys a little bit to get going after that. They're usually not, you know, especially these guys that kind of, it might be a bit of a different situation for him because of how his was timed, but especially these guys that kind of return halfway through a season, they're usually not all that great the rest of that season. And it's usually the next year that they get back to their usual selves. So if that happens with glass now, the, the Rays don't have an opportunity to really get the glass now they want back because he is only under one year of control remaining once he's healthy again. So they really only have that one season to gamble if he's going to come back all the way or not. And even if he does come back, how many innings are we looking at? He hasn't pitched much <laughs> at all since I, I believe 2017 was his last like sort of full season. Yeah, he hasn't pitched more than 100 innings in a season since 2018. And he hasn't made more than 15 starts in a season since 2017. So you're looking at 15, maybe 20 starts in 2023 for the Rays. And you know, some of those might not be the best. First month month or two back in the bigs might be a little rough. And you're paying him $13 million, $14 million total the next two years. I don't think that is in the Rays' best interest overall. However, it could make sense for the Astros, where Glass now, first of all, is a very Astros type of pitcher. You know, the power pitcher with great spin rate, great secondary pitch, um, just blows people away, high strikeouts. Uh, so that's very Astros. And it's also very Astros to, you know, to gamble on a guy before he's, in a lot of cases, it's before he's broken out, you know, the Garrett Cole thing. But here it's before he's come back healthy, taking a gamble while his price is a little lower than it would be necessarily. So from that perspective it makes sense and then they just have enough pitching that they can afford to add a guy who might only make those 15 starts in 2023 because uh, once we get to 2023 for the Astros we're looking at you know Justin Verlander will still be there he has a, a player option uh, but it's his age 40 season who knows how many starts he'll make he's been so durable but you can't beat father time every year so at some point it's going to catch up to him so who knows where he is there but they have plenty of other options to get them through the major league season to the point where maybe they piggyback Glasnow with Christian Javier or Jose Urquidy or Luis Garcia, like they kind of did in 2021 with those guys. Um, maybe they can use him out of the bullpen sometimes. He'd be a pretty dominant one or two inning guy. And, and basically they'd be able to afford to save their Glasnow bullets until the postseason in a way that I don't know the Rays necessarily would or could. I, I think the Astros would be more open to that. And so I think they see a lot of value there um, as a postseason guy. They also add Matt Wisler who kind of fits their MO again in the bullpen, you know, a, a plus pitch plus slider guy, uh, and they could use a little bit of relief help. And what the Rays are getting here is the, the centerpiece, Corey Lee catching prospect who can play some other positions. They don't necessarily have a solid long-term answer at catcher. They have a few guys who could make it, but they don't have like a real long-term starter. And, and Lee could be that guy starting in, you know, late 2022, 2023 when Zunino is gone. And then Chaz McCormick is a right-handed bat that the Rays need. 
Um, his inclusion is a little bit dicier from the Astros side because he's penciled in as their starting center fielder right now with Jake Myers on the injured list to start the year and Miles Straw traded to Cleveland. Uh, so they would have to find a different solution in center field. And then Paredes just feels like, you know, typical Rays gamble, high upside reliever, and, and they put it together. So that's the rundown of this one. It's it's I don't think it's the perfect trade. I think the biggest hole in it is that Astros center field question after trading McCormick. But I really, really like it from the Rays' perspective. Yeah, I, I get you. I, you know, it's weird because I don't. My first instinct was I don't love it from either team's perspective. But the more you talked about it, the more I'm like, yeah, okay. Um, like starting with the Astros, you know, I, I guess they've been good for so long now. I'm thinking their window is going to close. Their, their core is going to start to decline. They've already lost Springer. They've already lost Correa to free agency. So like you can start to see the team, you know, your girls in the late thirties, you, you, they're starting to get old and you know, sort of over the top. And so like, I'm not sure if they want to wait yet another year and still be competitive in 2023 for glass now. So that's my first problem with it. Otherwise, if they do think their window is still open in twenty into 2023 then yeah i think it makes sense uh from the race perspective sure glasnow's wasted six million right now and uh, i'm sure they would love to get as much as they can from him um you know Corey lee i think you to your point makes sense for them because it's one of the few areas where they have a gap in their prospect list is who is their future catcher so that's the main thing um i don't love them giving up whistler because i think they really like him out of their bullpen for the same reason i think the astros would be interested and the other two pieces, yeah, um, McCormick probably need, means more to the Astros than he does to the Rays because the Rays are kind of stacked in the outfield. Um, Paredes, sure, he would replace Wizzler, and he sort of fits their MO of a young guy struggling who they can fix. So, okay. Um, but getting back to um, the Astros sort of um, – so the Astros' other sort of issue here is they've got a terrible farm, and it makes sense because they've been spending all their capital to make the major league team successful. Um, so there's not much left of their farm, and Corey Lee is like one of the few valuable prospects they have. So they really would be going all in. So the whole question for me is, are they all in through 2023 or not? If so, then okay. If not, uh, <laughs> then I'm sort of question mark, question mark. Yeah, I think that's really fair. Um, a couple of the other points I, I forgot to mention is that, you know, Corey Lee is going to be a tough sell for Houston. Like you mentioned, he's their top prospect and they also don't have obvious answers at catcher after him and right now they're running with uh, Martin Maldonado and Jason Castro and those two guys are both older and mm -hmm. also free agents after the year so I mean they could be I think you're right that it really depends on the Astros uh, kind of timeline for the next couple seasons because they could be pivoting into kind of a reset not a rebuild but kind of more of a reload, figure things out, because they have some really remarkable young starting pitching in the majors and, and a couple names on the way. And I think that's enough to build around with, you know, Tucker, Alvarez, Altuve, whatever Bregman has left. There's enough there that they're going to stay competitive. But if you look at them potentially losing Correa, replacing him with Jeremy Pena, and, and there might be some growing pains there. And then next year, they're replacing their catchers with Corey Lee, which might be a process and... and mm -hmm things like that and, and guys getting more expensive or whatever you can expect from Verlander, uh, that kind of thing. When you look at that, you see, you think maybe it might be, you know, not, like I said, not, not a rebuild, but kind of a reset, kind of back up a little bit, focus on 
making some more of those raise type trades and, and thinking a year or two into the future instead of push all your chips in. Uh, so I could see that argument, but I could also see the argument of this core is really good right now. <laughs> and and we're always so close. We're always in the playoffs, almost always in the in either the championship series or the World Series. We want another ring, one that people can't say was cheated, that kind of thing. Yeah, it's also... So just, I, I could see it either way. Yeah, one final note is James Quick, their GM, came from Tampa. So he's yeah. intimately familiar with the Rays model and the next man up kind of thing and building the, the importance of building the farm, um, which would suggest that your retool sort of theory would be correct. Like, okay, let's bring up Henry. That's why they're not re-signing Correa. That's not that's why they let Springer go. You know, they're just sort of letting the next big prospect fill the gap kind of thing. And that worked with Tucker. It might work with Pena and might work with Corey Lee. Um, but that makes me think, okay, they'd probably be more hesitant to trade Lee um, given that they probably want to retool and save their bullets for the future. So, um, so that, that's where I'm still kind of stuck. <laughs> you know, like do would they really want to trade Corey Lee for Glasnow is what it comes down to it. And it comes down to whether they think they're going to be competitive in 2023 or not. So, and it's a little bit of a crystal ball situation where they maybe you're taking it one step at a time. Um, but if they are confident, then all, by all means it works. Mm-hmm. All right. A couple of last things I wanted to mention here and then we can wrap up because we are over two hours now. Uh. We usually don't get this far. <laughs> um, the McCormick piece of things, um, like I said, he's their center fielder right now, so that that's a tougher sell for the Astros. Uh, but there are some like permutations there that could make some sense. You know, you can maybe the Astros are okay with starting with Jose Siri in center field to start the year until Jake Myers is healthy, and then they'll give it to Jake Myers, who's a fast, great defender, pretty similar to Miles Straw to be honest. Um, or maybe they sign a free agent stopgap until Myers is healthy, or you can even shift the deal around a little bit and trade Myers to Tampa Bay instead so that Tampa Bay is taking on some injury risk too. Um, you're going to need to add another small piece, but maybe you do that. Or maybe you send either Brett Phillips or Manuel Margot from the Rays to the, to the Astros to cover their center field spots. So there's some other options there. This is just the one that was presented in this offer. Um, so there's some other things there. And then uh, one of the other things I wanted to note was um, User MP2891, who's a, a Rays fan, I had a good conversation with him in the comments. Uh, one of his top priorities, and something the Rays have said is a top priority for them as well, is to add a bigger right-handed bat. And so some of the names he identified were uh, J Jose Ramirez or Brian Reynolds, and we've talked in the past about why we don't think those guys will necessarily get traded. But he also mentioned J.D. Davis, Darren Ruff, guys who can DH, play the corner infield spots, maybe corner outfield in Ruff's case. Um, and I could see that in this in this uh, kind of set of proposals here, McCormick was taking that role as the right-handed bat. Maybe not as big of a hitter, but more affordable, more versatility, more of a complete player. But if you if you really don't think this glass now offer works, and I think there's a, real, a lot of reasons to believe that, <laughs> um, then you can replace this trade with you know a smaller profile deal for say Darren Ruff or J.D. Davis, and I think that could make just as much sense. In total, all of these deals have the A's trimming fort or excuse me the Rays trimming 14.4 million in 2022 salary. They're adding Manaya and McCormick to the uh, major league roster and, and clearing some space to add a couple more relievers, a couple more arms, wherever they see fit on the roster. Uh, in exchange, they're giving up Glasnow, Colmenares, and picking up Lee, who's a bit more of a, sure, a guaranteed thing than either Glasnow or, or Colmenares, and a couple flyers in Miller and Paredes. So 
whole lot going on here. I I had a lot of fun with this. I'm definitely going to be continuing this series as long as the lockout goes on. So who knows how many more of these we'll actually have time for. But I had a lot of fun with it, and it got some good feedback. And so haven't quite decided on the next team yet, but I expect another one of these in the near future. Great. It's fun to read. All right. John, it's been two hours and ten minutes almost. <laughs> I need some coffee. Yeah, me too. Do you have anything... Any other last-minute notes to add? No, I do think this format is working, so we might want to think about a, a next one with those teams mentioned. Yeah, we absolutely could. I have probably 10 more deals already lined up that I somehow expected us to get to today. All right. uh, never was going to happen, but yeah, we might we might have a fourth part of these coming, so keep an eye on your uh, subscription feeds for the next couple of weeks. Uh, but other than that, I think that will do it for this week. So thank you all so much for listening. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us an email at baseballtradevalues at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at baseballvalues. Also be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. We'll be back in a couple weeks to break down more news and updates. So until then, stay safe and enjoy the off season or I guess survive the lockout, however you want to look at it. <laughs> Thanks, John. Thanks, Josh.